Ryan John Marcus Stuka was a 20-year-old from Alberta, Canada. He had a close group of friends and two younger sisters. In the early morning hours of February 17th, 2018, in Sun Peaks, British Columbia, Ryan left a party to walk the short distance home. Ryan never arrived. He was never seen again. I'm Ed Densel, and this is Unfound. Regret and guilt are the two most common feelings I hear about in producing this podcast. From parents, from siblings, from children, from friends who have been interviewed. However, regret and guilt also can be found within people. Strangers, co-workers, customers who were in positions to see something, note something, hear something but didn't. Why didn't they? Frankly, because they didn't know a disappearance was about to occur. Who knows where it would be if someone had seen Tom Brown's Durango around midnight and known something was wrong. If the driver of the bus had noticed someone in the parking lot when Susie Lau got off at the Albany campus. If a hotel guest could remember seeing those two guards escort Cameron Remmer out of that hotel. Who knows how things would be different now? Well, with the disappearance of Ryan Stuka, there were people who could have noticed his exit from the party that night, but didn't, had they only known. And now a summary of the case. This is brought to you by my friend Megan Linus's website, charlieproject.org. Ryan Stuka was Canadian, but that doesn't mean he was into hockey. He didn't take up the sport until his teens, and then Ryan discovered he wasn't much of a natural athlete, which was totally fine with him. Instead, Ryan excelled in school and most importantly, in being a great person. But like many late teens, he wasn't sure what he wanted to do with his life. So Ryan decided to go with a friend on a winter adventure to Sun Peaks, British Columbia, to work in late 2017. There, Ryan made new friends, made some money, and got to snowboard before work every morning. So... On February 16th, 2018, it was a day like any other. Ryan went to work, came home, then went out with friends, eventually ending up at a large house where a bunch of his friends had gathered. The night turned into the morning of February 17th, and one by one, Ryan's friends left. Eventually, he left as well to make the short walk back to his apartment. 
Ryan never arrived. He was never seen again. Searches were conducted quickly, within 36 hours, but already several inches of snow had fallen, making those searches difficult, to the point that ski poles had to be used to probe deep into drifts and piles. Likewise, any footprints that would have been helpful were covered up. Nothing of Ryan's was found. We as the public always have a tough time understanding a disappearance where foul play might be a possibility, but the facts say that a person of healthy mind and body, who had everything to live for, who was simply making the same walk that everyone else did, has gone missing. Seemingly all on his or her own. Yet, I think more and more on Unfound, we're starting to understand this happens more than any of us ever realized. Please consider that as you try to answer these three questions while listening to the following interview. Number one, could Ryan not saying goodbye to anyone before leaving the party be seen as a sign he wasn't in a good state of mind? Number two, how seriously should we take an ear witness who said he heard something strange outside his home that night? And number three, could one of Ryan's friends walking the wrong way the exact same night give us a clue as to what actually happened to Ryan? Ryan's family is almost totally sure foul play did not occur in his disappearance. The guest for this episode is Ryan's mother, Heather Stuka. Unfound News. Unfound is now on another social media site, TikTok. But don't expect me to be doing any dancing or lip syncing. I will be previewing the intro and three question sections of each episode on there from now on. Probably a day early. If you're on there, please become a follower. Next, Brittany Drexel's remains have been found, and her killer is in custody. I produced a special video in response to this news that is now on Unfound's YouTube channel. It's like an Unfound Now episode, but different. Finally, Please send your love out to the family of Tanya Washburn. She died this week. She was the half-sister of April Andrews and was the guest for April's episode. This is now the sixth unfound guest to die. And it hurts every time. Where you can find unfound. Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, Podbean, and many other platforms, especially outside the United States. Unfound has social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Speaking of YouTube, join me on Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern on the Unfound podcast channel for the live show, the only one of its kind in true crime. Ask questions, chat with other viewers, and give the show a thumbs up. You can contribute to Unfound in the following ways. 
Patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast. PayPal.me forward slash unfound podcast. Contribute during the live show with the super chat. And lastly, join the YouTube membership program for the low price of 10 cents a day. The website, theunfoundpodcast.com. The email address, unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. And please mention unfound at all true crime websites and forums. Thank you. I'm so happy to have on this episode of Unfound, the mother of Ryan Stuka, Heather Stuka. Heather, welcome to Unfound. Thank you. Let's start here as we usually do. Uh, Listeners and viewers know that the most common demographic we have on Unfound are mothers of missing adult children. Unfortunately, today we have another one. Um, But let's talk about your, your your family first. How many children do you have, including Ryan? Just give us some of the some of the uh, dynamics of the Stuka family. Uh, so Scott and I have been married. Uh, we'll be twenty seven years this September. Okay. And um, we have three children. Oldest being Ryan, who would have turned twenty five this year. Our middle daughter Jordan is turning 22 in June. And then we have our youngest daughter, Juliana, who'll be 17 in September. All right. So Ryan was the only boy. Uh, How did he feel about that? You know what? I think he was very spoiled as a child. Uh, I think we, I think we didn't, we we had him and I was like, oh, I can't imagine loving another child. It just is not possible. And so it took us some some time to think about even deciding to have uh, Jordan. And then, of course, when you you have your your second child, you realize that that is not the case that there's, you know, the more love you have, the more you, you can give to uh, your children. But I, I can't say that he he liked being a big brother until, you know, Jordan wanted to play with him or wanted to take his toys. And then suddenly um, having a sibling was not as exciting for him. Uh, so they probably butted heads quite a bit when they were they were younger until she found her own friends. And then he just liked to tease her very much like my husband in that regard, uh, you know, will tease somebody. Uh, and so, you know, he would he didn't know the nuances for teasing at, at his young age. And so mm. sometimes he would uh, tease her to the point where she have tears and then he'd feel awful about it. Uh, and then he would do little things to make it up. Hopefully she wouldn't be so mad at him. Uh, when Juliana came around, he was full and ready to be um, an, a sibling and he really enjoyed it. It was eight years difference. Yeah. And so by the time she was, you know, getting into his stuff, you know, he was able to shut the door. He was 10. It was it was a totally different thing. So he, he always called her the baby up until um, even the last night uh, we spoke to him. Wow. He kept, so we call her the baby too. Even though huh. There is not. Huh. So maybe uh, him having that uh, first younger sister kind of trained him, you know, the mistakes and things to do and not do once he the, the second sister came around. Yeah, I think there was a controlled indifference that he had going on at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Would you say that as the big brother kind of protector for his younger two sisters, watched out for them? See that kind of big brother? Well, I, I'm, I think, yes. I mean, did we have a lot of instances where, you know, he needed to, to do that? Not really. Um, and so 
I can't say that, you know, they went through troubles that he'd have to sit there and, and feel like he defended. Jordan is is a pretty terrific uh, kid. So she was uh, three years behind him. So sometimes she'd come in the tail end of when he was finishing school, but she had yeah, her own sure. little friends. And um, mo- the problem, well, the, one of the nicest things about actually being in our town, our small town of Beaumont, although now it's a city, but at the time, uh, siblings would go to school together, right? So Ryan's group, friend group, most of them had siblings and and Jordan was quite familiar with them and she would hang out with uh, a lot of them. And so there was that sort of interaction that always handled. So we never really had any of those I- issues um, where he'd have someone teasing them and he'd have to defend them or anything like that. Okay. All right. We've talked about Ryan uh, quite a bit, of course, just within your family. So let's just talk about him uh, specifically now, maybe a little bit about his personality, his interests, his hobbies, education, those things. Uh, Maybe tell the audience a little bit about all of that. You know, he was a a pretty bright child. I still remember when he was 18 months that uh, he'd have these full sentences. And maybe that's the the thing about being an only child at that point in time uh, of all of our family members. So he got quite a, a lot of specialized attention or focus on him. So I still remember him in 18 months going, actually, mummy, that's not correct. And if you're saying, well, why is she saying it in a bit of an accent? One of his, his favorite shows to watch was uh, Teletubbies. And Poe used to always sit there and go, where's Poe's scooter? And so um, Ryan watched the PBS version of it and had a slight uh, slight accent when he was talking. I think that's more of a, a fault of me letting him watch uh, so much PBS when he was a child. But um, yeah, he was he was pretty smart, loved dinosaurs when he was a kid, moved on to, you know, all the rescue heroes, that sort of thing. Um, was was a great kid, loved loved to read, uh, really liked sports, did not like to play uh, or hockey or go onto the ice until he was 15. And then he got mad that we didn't insist on him um, uh, staying in skating. I was like, dude, you, you spent 45 minutes of every can skate crying. It, it is not uh, something that we wanted to continue to put you in and, and have that sort of nightmare for us. But he loved soccer, anything to do with running. He, uh, he, was a, he was quite athletic. He was one of those people, again, much like my husband in that sense that they'd pick up sports pretty easy. And that's infuriating to me to go out and never try to sport. Um, and then suddenly they're, they're coaching and or captain of the team or something like that. I was like, oh, like you have to work your way up to that like the rest of us. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I, I mean, I've played sports and I've done okay and everything, but yeah, I really had to work at it. So I know, I know how you feel, Heather. Sure. It was, it didn't come as easy, right? Um, mm-hmm. So athletic, he, you know, he had the same group of friends. He had um, two friends that he knew uh, before we moved to Beaumont. So we're, we were from Edmonton originally, which is about, you know, it's, it's really uh, sort of a subdivision. It's not, but that's the best way I could describe it probably to people that are listening. Um, so really quite close together. Um, and he had a couple of friends that he'd known since he was two and a half months old and then was three. And then he met all of his friends when he was in grade one and they are still um, loyal to him to this day, you know, wow. at 25, still um, keep in touch with us. Uh, still reach out, still come to celebrate these milestones that happen for him. So he had a really good group of friends, boys and girls, because they were in French immersion. 
um, in our town. It offers French immersion in every um, school. And so you tend to have smaller classes at that point in time. At that time, um, he had, I think there was only six boys in the class. The rest were all girls and they'd have maybe 17 kids in the class. Wow. So, and they kept going on year after year because they were only classes. So they got to know each other really, really well. And they, I, I think they have stayed fairly true to one another even today. Would you call that French immersion? Is that what, yeah. is that the, what you're going to have to, as a stupid American, you're probably going to have to explain that to me what that is. Um, it's just, it's, uh, it's an ability to go through and, and some of our uh, places in Edmonton will have German. Uh, I don't know if, I think there's must be Spanish, that sort of thing. Um, so you can take some courses in that, uh, French immersion just means you're actually immersed in French. So most of your classes are, are instructed in French. Wow. Um, with the, with the, the uh, caveat that they take their, their English and they do that all through high school up until high school and then high school you can choose in order uh, to get that French diploma you just need to take a couple of French classes um, and then you'll you'll graduate with full uh, uh, you, you are fully fluent in French so he could speak French he could and so can my youngest wow. daughter wow my, uh, look at them Jordan was not uh, not quite uh, interested in that. She'd learn French and then and sort of drop her English, and then the next week she'd drop Eng uh, French to uh, and learn English. So it just for her it was just a it wasn't a great uh, setup. But both uh, Ryan and Juliana took uh, French immersion. All right, thank you for explaining that. Just for anybody that. Uh, didn't know what that was, and I surely did not, so I couldn't let that pass. Okay, so being that we're talking about his education, uh, he goes to high school, the upper grades, um, uh, plans to go to college. What did he, uh, you know, 18, 19, what do you want to do with his life? You know what, he didn't He didn't know, um, and that's still today, if someone asked me, where do you think uh, Ryan would be, I, I I, couldn't really tell you, and that's that's kind of bittersweet mm -hmm. to think about. Um, what that looks like, but yeah, he he did really well in school. Um, he was a he was an intelligent kid, did well, no problems with him uh, during his teenage years. But he just couldn't get the handle on it like a lot of other kids do. So um, he he wasn't sure what he wanted to do, and so for the year after high school, uh, sometimes they call it a gap year. So for him, he didn't uh, do it in terms of traveling. But he um, went and um, did a year of working. And so my husband works for a construction company and Ryan decided he was, he was going to uh, work a year there. So he worked a year and I, I, I thought that would be helpful for him to decide if he wanted to do physical labor. And if he didn't, maybe that would help guide him into another path, wanting to go back to school. And so he was like, right. yeah, after a year of working, he said, I, I, I'm, I'd like to apply to school. Uh, he went to McEwen University, did a year of school there and did really well. But at the end of it, he's like, I just, I don't know what I want to do. And I don't want to keep spending money mm. to take a program, a generalized program and, and feel like I didn't, there's no jobs for me or it's not an interest or a passion. Okay. So yeah. what's, what's, what are you going to do next? That, you know, just a question. And so that's when he said, I was thinking about doing, um, going off and, and working for a season at a, a ski resort. Huh. And I thought, well, that, I you think, know, you know, what you're saying there, Heather, that shows a lot of maturity, you know, 
being that he didn't want to waste any more money, whether his home his own or yours, or you maybe had some scholarship or something. He didn't want to waste anybody's money if he wasn't into that. I, I know, of course, a lot of teenagers would have been said, you know what, I'm going to just keep going. It's a good time. I'm doing decent, you know, and we'll see how things work out. But I think that shows a bit of, you know, quite a bit of maturity for a 19, 20 year old to say, you know what, this isn't working. I'm not going to blow somebody's money, including my own on this. And so I'll just when I'm sure, I'll come back, and maybe I'll never be sure, but I won't be blown, wasting time. Sure, and that shows the, a lot of maturity, yeah. There was no uh, pressure from us uh, as a family. Uh, my husband went through a trades program, and um, uh, was a he's, he's a gold seal carpenter, uh, and then he's got project management, so he's a, an, an operations manager for the company he works for. So he, he came up and, you know, obviously did that physical labor, so, yeah. you know, we, the, and, and it's done quite well right. and he's enjoyed what he's done. He's known what he's wanted to do. I went through um, a more, uh, a university path. So, you know, we've got two, two sides of, of that sort of education path that we've taken. And we've never, we, I always say that I didn't know, I went to university and took all these courses and it wasn't until I got my uh, my first job after after having the kids, I went back to work and I went to work for WestJet, which is an airline here in, in Canada. I was so excited to do that job. And I came in as a customer service agent when I first started. And, you know, they, they pay whatever the minimum wage was slightly above. And I think and I thought for the first time, I was really excited. I felt like I had found something that I had a passion for. And so I like to, to equate that to, to my children and going, you know, you will do great things in life, I believe. And it doesn't always have to be something that's related to um, having that university path. Right. It, it's, I think sure. there's a lot of things that, that you need in order to, to move forward. Um, but school is just one part, part of your life. And so the pressure for them to decide what they want to do as long as they're happy i don't think my husband and i have ever really had that sort of expectation that they follow one path or the other right right hey i i have a bachelor's degree uh from a school here in the united states and it was probably the biggest four years of waste in my life so i yeah you know i should have known and maybe it's not for me i should have done something else so i get it i understand absolutely what you're saying for sure of course, uh, so let's now go back to what you said, of course, about this ski resort. Uh, of course, it's called Sun Peaks. Why Sun Peaks and not some other place? What was it about this place? Of course, there are a lot of ski resorts in Canada. Why this one um, in particular? Uh, you know, I, I had asked him when he was first going, as I thought, okay, well, maybe um, you'd like to do a ski resort in Banff or Lake Louise or Jasper, all the national parks that are quite close. And he really loves BC. And so that was where he wanted to go. I was born in British Columbia. We had taken uh, trips there. We'd go to Vernon all, all the time with our, our friends who have a place there. And so we'd spend some summer vacations there. Loved it. So I understand the draw uh, to BC, but I, you know, I'd, I'd like to see that, you know, he looked at some peaks and went, oh, and had this aha moment. This is where he'd have to go. But in actual fact, they applied him and his um his friend James applied to many, I think, uh, oh. uh, many ski resorts. And uh, maybe Revelstoke was one of their first ones they were thinking about. And then James got offered a job at Sun Peaks and then Ryan shortly thereafter. It was, okay. I think it was okay for that um, because I was like, okay, that's perfect. 
um, working for WestJet, I can fly in. He could fly home. You know, there's there's bases. Oh, there's an airport there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. At the bottom in Kamloops, uh, had a had a base, and then Cologne is about two hours away, which has some more ski resorts, and um, they have an airport there as well. So I just thought, okay, well, it's it's a good thing. And we had gone there for the very first time. I think it was in uh, December of 2015. Uh, we went for the end of uh, just for New Year's actually with our friends, and so uh, we had already been to Sun Peaks. Although I, I, you know, I can't say if I looked back if I remembered too much about the place except there was a lot of us crammed into a small space um, and the kids went skiing and did some tubing uh, and then we just sat and hung out so I didn't know much about the town but at least there was some familiarity with it with him being there all right so his friend gets hired there he gets hired there that's how that all worked out so it's just a process of them sending out applications and which place was going to accept them first that's right. Absolutely. Okay. And this friend James, he was he there in Sun Peaks when Ryan went missing? He was, was yeah. he there? Okay. So All right. we'll, went we'll get back to that later. I just want to make sure that was clear that, okay, his yeah. friend James was there. All right, great. So that's how he chose to go there. Maybe he would have gotten accepted somewhere else, but that came in first and he could be there with a friend of his. That sounds like a really good situation there. Of course, James is there. What about anybody else? Was there anybody else there that was already there? who we knew or everybody just complete strangers showing up all there. complete strangers yeah just complete strangers he didn't know anybody okay all right but it sounds like he's the type of guy that uh would make friends quickly and would you say that happened once he got there and um, when and when did he get there so he arrived james arrived november 1st ryan uh came december 1st because they had two different they got Two different jobs so one was a a lift operator and then ryan um turned out to be uh doing tube time which is a tube uh train park so then he would help uh push the tubes down and get them all set up and make sure that everybody was able to use the tubes during the day it was a pretty pretty good gig for him um worked i think 11 to 7 or 11 30 to 7 30 uh and then had uh two I think he had Sunday and Mondays off. So, you know, it was, it was an actual perfect schedule. If he wanted to go out to kind of get immersed in that ski life, he was able yeah. to do it Didn't have early mornings, didn't have late nights. So I think it was a pretty good uh, job for him. Uh, he went up and I, you know, I can't say Ryan makes friends easy. I think he's, he's hmm. introspective. I think that he's had the same kids that he's known since grade one, right? That, that huge yeah. crux of friends that he hung out with. I, I, and, and loyal and funny and would be outgoing with them, but he was kind of that kid that sort of sat back and, and assessed the, the room, uh, sort of took stock of, of what was going on. And then, uh, if he felt comfortable, would then reach out and have that so i wouldn't say that he was that gregarious person that would be running around uh and meeting friends uh, but but everybody liked him you know he had he he came into a situation and he had met his he was living in a house with five other people so there's six of them living in the house and made friends with them and made some friends that were there that that re they really enjoyed him and it was interesting uh for me because if when they, they talked about it and they described Ryan and his sort of activities, it matched what, you know, of course, as a parent, I would have said, yeah, that's his personality, but 
again, as a parent, you sit there and go, there's lots of things that you don't know about your children that they don't necessarily share. Right. So uh, I'm not naive to think I knew everything about my son, uh, but they mimicked or they, their recollections of Ryan sort of mimicked what I thought, but also the friends that he's had since grade one. So, you know, he was always, I think his very true authentic self. I think that always came across. How was that housing arranged? Was James one of the other roommates? Uh, were they all him and James and then four other people? Right. So accommodations in the ski resort tends to be a bit of an, an issue. Uh, there is not enough accommodations. And it's it's far from Kamloops, which is a city 45 minutes away at the bottom of the of the ski hill and then out some. So it isn't most of them come and they don't have cars because they're coming from overseas. And so, um, you know, they'll get a ride up with all of their stuff up to, to Sun Peak. So they don't go back and forth. Nobody really commutes and lives down in Kamloops so much that that grouping and then comes up. And so there's not a lot of housing there. Ryan was lucky. He started off with staff accommodation and then James had found this rental house, which was right, almost right across the road from it. And so there really is only two bedrooms and a loft there. And so Ryan and James shared this. I, I, I can't even say it was bigger than a closet, to be honest with you. It was enough to put two bunk beds in it. Um, the closet door was taken off so they could put two screen uh, TVs so they could play PlayStation. Yeah. And that's it. There was no room to maneuver or anything in there. It was tight. And for that, I believe they paid $900 each for it. Like wow. it is, it was expensive. Wow. It yeah. was expensive. And then the other um, roommates, Chris and Kristen, um, they had the, the, the master bedroom that was downstairs as a couple. And then two other um, roommates that were uh, ladies lived upstairs in the loft. All right. So there were a couple women there. It wasn't all guys. It was, all, it was three, three, uh, three girls, three guys. Oh, okay. Thank you. All right. Um, you said that there are people uh, from overseas there. Uh, what from Europe or yep. oh, okay. Australia tends to be quite quite a few. Huh. Um, I would say England, Ireland, anything like that. That's they they come and they enjoy that experience. It's easier to get, I think, a work visa to come over and and stay or a visitors visa. So they 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 sort of. Um, interchange and they come and spend a couple of, of months or a year or so and then uh, move on with their travels so yeah quite a huge okay. base of uh, certainly Australians that uh, live wow. and work there all right so not all Canadians there's a mixture of other countries as well young people like Ryan okay yes. all right uh, your impression of course it's December um, of 2017 you said that James got up there a month before that your impression on how things were going uh, in maybe in that first month uh, how often were you talking to Ryan maybe some of your other children were talking to him your impressions on how it was going uh, you know uh, it was going well we talked to him quite regularly my husband talked to him uh, at least two or three times a week like personally I would send text message and he would text back uh you were lucky if you could get um a, a facebook or, or face uh, time or with him he wasn't he was out living his life so he was happy with doing that but he would talk to his dad on the phone uh, quite a bit when scott was driving around they'd they'd have that conversation while he was at work uh the girls would snap uh they have snapchat so they would send snaps i always knew 
if I really, really wanted to get a hold of him and if I really wanted a response right away, I just had to send him a DM in his uh, Instagram and send something to do with dogs and say, oh, look, it's a dog collar. And he'd like, get it. Like, wow. and I was like, it's nine, it's, it's nine o'clock here. So it's eight o'clock there. Like, what are you doing up so early? And he goes, I don't want to get in the habit of sleeping in. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah, we, we, we talked to him quite a bit. He seemed to enjoy himself. He had um, friends from Beaumont that came up that were coming up to visit. Uh, we talked about going up at Christmas, but you know, Sun Peaks is a resort, a ski resort, and it has, um, you know, it's expensive to go and to find accommodations to stay. So we just didn't think we were going to make that work. And we thought, well, maybe he would come home for Christmas. And then he was like, no, I just don't have enough days off. So I won't be able to fly in. And that was, I was a little bit sad. I was, uh, it was bittersweet. Um, I, we called him Christmas morning and he was FaceTiming us. And I'm like, so what are you doing today, buddy? Like, I was so worried that he wouldn't have the stockings, like as a mother, mm -hmm. uh, he wouldn't have, and, and he's 20. So I don't know why I was so worried about it, but like, he's not going to have the stockings that he wants. He's not going to have the cinnamon buns in the morning. He's not going to have that, you know, whole Christmas experience. He's going to be so sad and lonely. And yet when he FaceTimes, he's like, yeah, no, like we we're having a Christmas uh, exchange. Uh, we're having a potluck and then we're going uh, snowboarding for the day. I was like, oh, okay. So he's like, I'm having a great time. I'll talk to you guys later. And I was like, okay. He hangs up the phone. I'm like, he doesn't miss <laughs> us. You did, but you didn't want to uh, guilt him uh, while you're on the phone. No, right? I, I never wanted to guilt him. I never want to guilt my children into doing right. things that make them happy in that right. sense. So. All right. So Christmas came and went. Did you have any um, upcoming plans? Because you didn't get to see each other at Christmas, did you have any upcoming plans to actually meet up, see each other uh, in the future? And maybe you did actually see him before he went missing. But did you make any plans there around Christmas because you didn't get to see him? We were going to. At the time, I had ruptured my Achilles tendon. I had done that in October. So it's the second of both, actually. So, uh, you know, and with that came... Uh, the, the ability to not be able to walk, but then it, Ryan had two weeks off before he was going up to Sun Peaks. He had finished his job and he had two weeks off. And so we spent that two weeks together. And so I, I look at it uh, maybe as a silver lining that I got to spend time with him before he left that I would not have had spent if I was uh, working at the airport. So, you know, we thought about going up in January, but I still wasn't weight bearing at that time. And the snow and sleet uh, up here in the ice were so bad that I actually went to visit my parents in Hudson and spent a month with them there and let them take care of me. Uh, uh -huh. And so the, the listeners should know when she says Hudson, she means Hudson, Florida was just uh, an hour north. We were just talking about this before the interview started. Hudson, Florida, of disc golf up there. It's a beautiful area. So yeah, yeah. Hudson, Florida. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, so you came so down here. All right. I came down here and then I was coming back and we had made plans to go up in February to go and see him. So, you know, it had, had everything not happened the way it had, um, I, Scott and I would have gone to go visit him and spend a couple of days uh, there as it, as it turned out, that opportunity was lost to us, but we did uh, speak to him, all of us, which is again, sometimes I, I, you wonder about timing or the irony or, or whatever, maybe it was, um, you know, good fortune, I suppose. Uh, we called him on uh, Valentine's day and everybody was at home and 
I, I, I want to, I jokingly say he suffered through it, you know, because he's, he's out doing his stuff and really wants to have FaceTime conversations with the, the whole family. But we, we spoke to him and the girls got a chance to, and it was, it was, it was a little bit weird in that sense. Cause the girls were like, I love you. And he's like, yeah, I love you too. That sort of thing. Um, and so all of us had a chance to talk to him that last, and that was our last uh, actual conversation with him besides, you know, me texting him uh, and then him responding. So this would have been once again, Valentine's day. So February 14th of 2017, 20, yeah, 2018, 2018, yeah. I'm sorry, 2018. All right. So technically two to three days before he went missing. Yes. Okay. Uh, do you know, happen to know how long was he planning on staying there? When does the skiing season end or when he might've been planning to, you know, maybe come home or go somewhere else? Do we even know anything about that? Well, and it was interesting because his birthday, his 21st birthday would have been March 17th. And, you know, I was like, okay, well, like we should go to Vegas or something like that. He goes, you know what? I think I'm actually going to spend my birthday here. And I'm like, okay. So he was obviously at this point really enjoying where he was. Uh, I had said to him because my birthday is April 1st and it depends on when the ski. So I want to say that the ski, his position, his actual position was going to be done I think the, by April 1st, I was like, Oh, so you'll be home for my birthday. And he's like, well, I've, you know, yeah, I've paid until the 15th of April. And as it turned out, there's, there was at some peaks for two years in a row, they had this um, event called snow bombing. So they'd have some acts that came in and there would be music uh, and lots of things that was going around um, the whole sort of a winter fest. And so he really wanted to stay for that. And so I, you could tell when he's like, well, you know, I, I, I feel responsible if I don't stay into the 15th. Cause I've, I've made that commitment. I'm like, you're wanting to go to snow bombing. Mm-hmm. Like you're just say it. Your- right. Just say it. Brian. <laughs> yeah, ahead, just say it. Yeah. So he would have been home. I, th- I think April 17th, he would have been home around that time. All and, right. So he's, was- yeah. So he was paying rent on like the 15th, not like the first, like I think of me paying my rent, but he was paying rent from 15th to 15th then or something like that. I think it was the first, but I think because of the way it, it went that they give their notification that they would only pay half the month. And so the landlord at that time was like, yeah, it's, it's fine. Uh, you guys, instead of coming out at April 1st, cause not all of them uh, would have left like the ski resort actually didn't close. I want to say until April 10th, but Ryan's uh, position was done. So there was a lot of movement within uh, the workers. And I think the landlord was, was pretty okay with getting some extra money for that week, uh, month rather than having them all out April 1st. Of course. Yeah. Okay. So by all accounts, he's doing good. He's enjoying himself there. He's doing a decent job. He's making some money. He's at least with one good friend he's had for a while. He's making other friends, uh, both men and women. And of course, we're going to get to this party that he went to shortly, but he had gone to maybe several parties that other people were throwing during the course of the roughly two and a half months he was there. Yeah, I think so. And I don't know if he went to parties all the time. I, I don't think we ever got the sense of that. I don't even know if the roommates would say that. There's times that um, if he didn't, if some one of the roommates weren't going out or James wasn't going out or, or whatever it was, then Ryan would stay in and, and play on, on his PlayStation. So it wasn't like it was full on party. I have to go out every single night. I think that um, he was picky about when he went out and what yeah. he did. I don't think he was always... Um, on the go uh so but i think he enjoyed his time that he was there 
Okay, very good. So as his mother, no worries about him at all over those two and a half months. None at all. You thought, man, that was a good decision he made to go work there and, and do everything else. I think I, I think what I liked about it is because he was so introspective, you know, of course, working for an airline, I'm like, oh, if you're going to travel, why don't you, you know, go overseas? Like, you know, we have uh, you, you can go for a, a reduced rate to go places that most people would dream about going. Like, why don't you go? My brother lives in. Uh, well, currently he lives in Edinburgh. Um, and so I'm like, well, go and visit my wow. your uncle, um, uh, Kevin and Donna, go visit, go visit them. Uh, and he was like, no, no, he just wasn't that um, sort of adventurous type. So, I, I mean, I really was surprised that he was thinking about doing uh, um, this season at a ski resort. It just seems so out of character, but I was happy that he was doing something within his comfort zone. It didn't seem so far away. He could come home if he needed to, you know, he didn't feel like he was, and he was going with somebody new. So I think for him, it was a, a bit of a safety net to be able to do that. Um, and I laugh because yes, he was making some money, but not anywhere near. Like he was making uh, as a as a carp or as a laborer about twenty three dollars an hour. And the ski resort at the time, their minimum wage, I think they were sitting at about eleven dollars and forty seven cents. So that's quite a quite a leap from where he worked. He didn't go to make the money; he went mm -hmm. for the experience. And I think that I was I was happy um, for him. And, and I still will say despite the cost that it came to Scott and I and, and the girls yeah. that I'm, I'm still happy that he had a chance to do something out of the ordinary for himself, no matter how it, it turned out that he, he sort of took that, that opportunity and wanted to find out more about himself. All right. Okay. Very good. Let's move on to February 16th. 2018, of course, this is like the day before the night or early morning of his disappearance. What do we know about Ryan's movements that day, either from his work or maybe texting people, Snapchatting people? What do we know about that day? So he worked that day. I believe that must have been uh, a payday. He would have gotten paid on the 15th, uh, so the 16th. So he went to work like normal. I want to say that he went to the annex, which is kind of a part of this, the ski resort where workers can go, but also other people can go and like buy meals. And so. It's almost like a cafeteria style. So I think he went in and had his traditional uh, poutine, which he really loves. Uh, so for, for you guys, again, if you're not mm. familiar with that, your fries, your gravy and your cheese. Yes. So yes. Um, he was, uh, I think he, that was his almost daily lunch that he would, he would have during his uh, break. He went online and did his online bill payment. So if he had to transfer money for rent, he did that. Uh, I think he paid his phone bill. I think he paid his credit card bill, um, his insurance on his car or his car payment. I think he did all of those things on his break. And then he took out money from the ATM. So uh, what I found, what I heard, and sort of uh, we've had that sort of validated is that he would, uh, he didn't like to use his debit card when he went up to uh, the bar because he was afraid that, you know, you start drinking a little bit more, you have that tab going Yes. Uh, you don't know where your money's going. And at the end of the night, you have this huge bill that you've paid for and, and you don't quite know how you got there. Yes. So his habit was always to take out the money for the two nights that he'd be going out and pay everything in cash. So uh, that's, and, and that became sort of more important later because then we were able to see how much he had spent on alcohol for those, uh, for that one night. And he had spent it all actually. Wow. So, okay. Um, he, uh, so he went to work his full day. Uh, and then he, I don't believe that he did a lot of 
communication, either texting or anything. The last text that his phone um, has was his text to James saying he was on his way home. And, and that was it. So he picked up a, a friend that was uh, working at the annex and wasn't feeling well. And he asked Ryan if he could catch a ride uh, because it's, it's, it's a small resort, but the distance between the village, the main village where the ski, all the skiing happens in the shops and where staff accommodation is, can be about a 20 minute walk, 20, 25, depending on where you are. Most of them would take it. Sometimes there's shuttles, but in between times you sort of have to wait. And I, and I believe it was cold that day anyways. And so his friend asked if he wouldn't mind waiting and giving him a ride. And so he did that, dropped him off and then went, uh, went home. And that was the last time he used his phone. He didn't phone anybody. He didn't receive texts from anybody. He didn't text anybody. I don't even know if he used social media. Cause I think that's what we've sort of were able to ascertain is that he did not use social media, which isn't surprising when you think about it. Um, that wasn't who he was. He, he was very much present in the moment. So he wasn't like me. I'd be like, Oh, I'm taking a self, I'm taking a selfie. I want to take it. I want to record all of this. He was not in that. He was totally into the mood. He was not into the having to post things on Snapchat or Facebook or Instagram or anything like that. He just wasn't, he wasn't into it. So he never used his phone again that night. All right. So when you say he was saying he was going home, this would have been going, not going home for the party, going home from work. Coming home from work. Yeah. Work. So like, like you said, he worked like 11 to 7, 1130 to 7.30, something like that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so they were going out and I think he was probably just giving him a heads up. Like I'm on my way home. I'll be there shortly. We can leave to go back up to the village uh, to go, uh, go to bottoms, which is the, the bar. Well, it's the restaurant slash bar. Uh, that hosted the silent disco that night. Okay. All right. So he gets, I guess he went home and then they went out. Where did they go? And how eventually did he end up at this party uh, where a, a bunch of people were that seemingly the last place that he was? How did that all happen from that night into the early morning that he went from maybe this bar to actually somebody's house? So I think he was home. I can't even tell you how long he was, he was home. It's always fuzzy in terms of timeline of what we heard at the moment and still trying to process that raw grief that we were feeling. So, you know, there's a lot of things that, that I, I don't know if I have sort of um, narrated to myself or if I, like I've gotten that information. I don't know if I've made it into a timeline that's accurate or not. So we know that he went home. Um, I think he, they said he chugged a couple of beers there. And then I don't know if he he'd changed, got dressed or whatever. Obviously he must've changed from whatever clothing he had. And then uh, they made their way up to the village. And so there's, because there is no taxis and a lot of times there's no shuttles, uh, they, there's people that will make uh, a couple of extra bucks by driving people that aren't, they get donations and they just drive them up in their car and uh, drop them off. So it's kind of like their own in-house uh, uber or taxi Lyft or something right? yes sure so okay. they got a ride up to the bar right up to the village and where bottoms is there's another restaurant that's right next door called masses and so it's quite quite large and so there was a lineup to get into bottoms it was freezing so they ended up going to masses having a drink watching the line go down and then as soon as the line was more manageable they left masses and went right next door to to bottoms to get into the silent disco so that was the event that was going on Everybody handed in their license. They got headphones. And I think there's two channels that play music. And so the entire restaurant is silent. 
but everybody's listening to this whole music. And so you could be listening and, and dancing, I suppose. And the, and, and you're listening to tech techno and somebody else is listening to hard rock. I don't know what the channels were, but that's kind of what the premise was. He was there. I'm feeling so old right now, Heather. I've never heard of this. I'm 51 years old. I'm feeling like I'm 101 now. Okay. Very good. I never heard of a silent disco. Please continue. Now that everybody knows what that is, please continue. (laughs) So the last, that last night was the, the night that his, uh, photo was taken the last photo that we have that were taken by people photographers that were were in the the bar taking a, a taking pictures and and then posting on their social media yeah. so uh, whenever the last call was whatever um, was there he gave in his uh, headphones got his license back and they all started walking back down so there's a group of them walking back down to staff accommodations that's where the majority of them live and I think a shuttle bus that comes from Kamloops to drop airline passengers up at the hotel was making their last way down for the evening because WestJet has their last flight. I wanted to say at that time, it was like 11 something. And so they'd make the way up, get everybody going. So 45 minutes up and then back down. So I think um, the shuttle driver saw all these people walking and said, Hey, like, I'll give you a ride. It's so cold. And then just dropped them off just before staff accommodation where the fire hall is in sun peaks. And so staff accommodations is up. Ryan's is right there. And then there's a, a small road and then it takes you down to another road that's called Burfield and Burfield has a, has a bunch of houses. And so when I talk about staff accommodation being quite slim, uh, most of those houses at that time had, uh, they were duplexes, but actually they were, were fourplexes. So uh, most of them had basement suites in them. There's not enough. And so um, landlords were, were making uh, arrangements to have these workers yeah. stay in these, these places. So now it's changed. Obviously, we're looking at four and a half years later. They still have quite a few, all those houses uh, will have those um, suites in them. And then on the opposite side, now you've got some of these bigger houses that are going in because Sun Peaks is really is sort of blooming um, as a community. So there's a, a lot of older houses and then there's a lot of the, the new houses that are built on the same street. So okay. they got dropped off. And so some of them um, went to staff accommodations, whatever the group was. Um, some of Ryan's roommates were, that were there with them went home and Ryan and James and Chris and Kristen uh, decided along with some other people that they were going to head down to Burfield. And because it's staff accommodations, all locals, there's about three houses that sort of lifties, they say, uh, tend to uh, hang out at. So I know it's a party. It, it is still a party by anybody's definition, mm-hmm. but they're not, um, they're more when I say gatherings, I know that probably sounds weird to people. They're like, well, if it's got 30 people and it's a party, it is, but it's not like people are bringing their alcohol. Sometimes it's just a, a place to gather after you've mm-hmm. worked your shift and hang out with people that, you know, it's so, just not like there was somebody who was holding a party and was had throughout invitations. Hey, I'm having a party tonight at nine o'clock, bring your own bottle. It wasn't anything like that. No. These were just accepted places that people knew they could go on certain nights of the week and people would just be hanging out. Right. And certain nights of the week. So some nights were there the Sunday, fun day, there was the blue 
Blue Jay House or Blue, Blue Jay House. And then I think there was the Wolves Den. So there's three that had these names given to them and they sort of uh, rotated who, when they would go over, maybe based on the people's schedules that were working there. So each house sort of had a night that you could kind of go and and hang out with it unless they had, I, I suppose they might've had, you know, certain evenings that they would do something with. So they decided that they were gonna to go to Sunday Fun Day House. A group of them went in there. Uh, and so I, Hard to say what time they arrived, but there was nine of them that Ryan knew specifically. And they all sat in the living room on the couch and just sort of hung out there for a bit. But again, um, most of them would have come from the bar. Uh, I don't believe there's off sale, so they couldn't get alcohol. So you're coming in after drinking, going into this house that's not really serving alcohol. That's, you know, if you had it, that's great, but they, they, they're not supplying it. So I don't know how long everybody sort of wanted to stay. James left first uh, and said, I'm tired. I'm just going to head home. So he left and went home. Okay. And then Ryan's left with the seven other people. And then Chris and Kristen said with their friend, Jordan, like we're, we're going to head home, Ryan. And uh, by their accounts, it looked like Ryan was going to stand up, looked like he was standing up and it looked like he was going to go put on his coat to come with them. And then they just, they just left. He didn't, he didn't make a sound like saying, yes, I'm coming, wait up for me. They just assumed why him standing up that, that that's what his intention was. Mm -hmm. So when they walked out of the house, they walked uh, home and there's no streetlights on Burfield at all. So it's quite dark. And it's, and if you can imagine the number of people that live there, the uh, streets are filled with cars, no matter what you do. So it's really kind of hard to see. There's no um, sidewalks or anything like that. At this time, they've had record snowfalls. And so where are you going to take the snow that's coming out of the small driveways? You're piling it up sort of in the spot of your driveway. So some of those um, snow banks could be anywhere from eight to 14 feet high. So it was really hard to see. I, we went through the whole week, the first week without even recognizing that there was basement suites because you just couldn't wow. get the sense. Cars are all in the driveways. Um, everything's expanded on that, that one side. So it's, it's really hard to see. So they ended up walking home. And I think at some point they sort of turned around and saw Ryan wasn't with them, but for them, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a concern. He's, okay. he's 21 in, in most uh, eyes. He's 21. Most people walk uh, around to get to the places. His, his house was not far from there. Uh, you know, that's kind of what everybody does. And quite frankly, it was minus 26 out. There is no expectation on my husband's and I'm our part that we think that they should have waited. He was not a 14 year old boy with people that we sort of right. expected that they were babysitting. They were all friends. One left early, went home. Nobody cared that he went home. He made it though. That's, that's the problem. Uh, and Ryan uh, did not. So they end up going home. And I think they, I think at that point, everybody's sort of, um, you know, going into their respective rooms. And I, I just don't think that they noticed Ryan didn't come that he, he was going to stay at the party or he was going to make his way a little bit later. And so nobody really recognized that he was not there until the following evening. I should jump in here for a second, just for all the non uh, Celsius people. Oh, Minus right. 26 is getting down to like single digits for in Fahrenheit, correct? Right. I don't yes. want anybody to think it was minus 26 Fahrenheit because that's like weather that'll kill you in <laughs> seconds. Okay, so minus 26 in Celsius, but still very cold. 
very, very cold. cold for sure. Okay. So they're all going out there. They're just, Hey, Ryan's, uh, you know, not a youngster. He's not 10 years old. He can take care of himself. He's lived there. He knows where he lives. He knows where this party is. He knows his way home. And they just kind of took for granted. Oh, just, he'll just be a couple of minutes behind us. Of course, that was not the situation. Of course, we know that that's not, maybe not what happened, but, um, you know, what, what are the, what's the time frame in all of this? When they left, when people think that Ryan left, what, what do we know about that? How accurate can we be there? Well, and, and I think that's, that's always the problem that people want to have with the whole situation is how can the, their memories be so spotty? How, how can you even tell the accuracy? And I'm like, and, and the reality is, is that some of them were drinking. Some of them had been probably doing recreational drugs. Some of them would have, you know, combined both of them. And then there was other people that weren't drinking at all. They had just finished their shift and were showing up. So there was, um, sort of a hodgepodge of everybody, but now you're asking people and not everybody's known each other. They've, some of them have just come to the skate resort at the same time. And yeah. so may have seen Ryan once or twice, but not really know who he is. And, and again, Ryan's not the outgoing one. That's going to be out there having a party with everybody and everybody's going to know his name by the end of the evening. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're asking people who don't know that this huge event is about to happen, that they need to have their memories in check. Right. So they're just sort of remembering the evening as they can. And you have to piecemeal together those, um, those rememberings to sort of come up with a, an accurate timeline. So I would say that we know that he would have arrived after one. I believe that he's, they all stayed until the, the end of the, the night out. So last call and finished up at one, everybody's out by one, they got a ride down. So they didn't have to worry about it. So maybe they're there a little after one. Um, and then I don't think they were there much longer because um, I think Kristen got a text from the four other people that were at the party that they were sitting with. And they, they had sent a picture of the four of them. Ryan was not included in it and sort of said, Hey, we're coming to your house. Now, I believe that Chris and Kristen would have left at that time because no one's sending a group chat message with a picture to the person who's sitting right beside you saying, hey, we're coming to your house. So that sort of indicates to me that Chris and Kristen had already left. And I think that was maybe about 140-ish okay. that they were there. Um, and so after that, I, I, I can't tell you, I know that there were people that, the only people that left by 2.30 at that house were people that knew each other. So either they were the roommates that lived in that house or they were uh, close friends of the roommates because two of the roommates came down and said, look, we have to work tomorrow. We don't want to like, can we send everybody else home? So it was a very small group by two 30. So whatever occurred, occurred between, I would say one forty and two 30. And I think for the listeners, what, uh, what you're all hearing here is obviously Heather and her family and maybe police, other people have done a very thorough job of tracking these people down to try to figure out, you know, when this all happened. So these are things you had to do later. It might have taken some time to find all these people. But what you just stated all that over the last couple of minutes there are things that you've discovered since. You've right. talked to these people and they remember at 140, 2.30 and, and all of that. These are things that you've actually discovered yourself or or with police help. The law enforcement. So we, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. we'll know people and we'll talk to people and we've talked to some people that were, were certainly at the, the party, but it was never our mission 
to go out and um, interview. And I think, um, so maybe that may be confusing to other people, but for the first, mm-hmm. uh, well, I mean, for the first week or two, we had no idea. We just thought Ryan was lost and the snow kept falling. And so there wasn't really a sense um, in that moment, given Ryan's personality, uh, given the, the where he was, given the terrain that he found himself in and, and the conditions that happened, that we at that time thought there was anything else that was involved. Certainly the police were doing that. And by the time we sort of recognize that this could also be a possibility the police had already had begun that investigation sort of a parallel investigation where one they treat him as a missing person and two they treat it as suspicious right um that way they don't have they can get it right at the moment they don't have to backtrack and go oh should we talk to this person is it relevant so they started sort of that parallel investigation and we just thought because um it was so important for us to find ryan that that is not something that I have the skill set or my husband has a skill set to sure. go and interview people and make sure that I uh, don't skew any of the information that I don't, uh, um, you know, interject what my own opinion is. And then people's memory gets even more. I'm, I don't have that skill set. Best to leave it at that point to the professionals. And I have to say for us, our law enforcement experience has been maybe different than other people's. Um, they've been very accountable from the very beginning. Um, certainly there's some ups and downs and try to figure out um, what we want to see and, and having that desperate and urgent need to find Ryan and bring him home and, and know what happened to him. Um, sort of balancing that with um, with letting the, the police do their jobs and, and they do it and we have updates all the time and they have interviewed and re-interviewed and re-interviewed um, the same people that either the roommates and or the party goers. Very good. Uh, let me just ask you some questions. And anybody remember once again between the police and you know, and to a lesser extent, I guess yourself, your family. Anybody remember seeing Ryan leave this party? Anybody remember saying goodbye to him? Anybody else leave around the same time? Any any of those any of those uh, questions? Can you answer? None. Nobody knew it. And again, I think that comes to that spotty that spotty recollection. They didn't know they needed to. And. Um, and so I, I, I'm sure that sounds completely weird. And, and it's a hard to reconcile that with ourselves, um, but I can't force people to remember uh, something that they may or may not. And so nobody's, nobody can remember Ryan leaving. He just okay. wasn't there. Okay. So of course, we, that's now we're talking very early of February 17th of 2018. When does somebody notice that Ryan isn't home? One of the roommates, was he supposed to go to work the next day? How does it pop up that it's like, well, Ryan is supposed to be in his bed or getting out of bed at this point and he's not. When does that happen? Right. So we don't have that smoking gun like, oh, my God, his bed's never been. It wasn't slept mm-hmm. in. You can tell like, he was 20 years old. I don't even think the bed was ever made. Yeah, that, yeah that, we are. Uh, yeah, that really. We, Full house is a bomb. Yeah, yes. Full house is a bomb. So I don't think anybody's able to tell if he was there or not. Uh, so he would have worked that day. Normally would have been 11, 1130. Um, and so I think one of the roommates got um a text message from his supervisor saying hey is ryan coming in today we're, we're really going to need him and and i think it's important so ryan was um was very diligent never never missed a day even when he was working uh with scott he never missed a day i think he missed one because he had a concussion from rugby but other than that and this was a kid that never went out like his friends had no school on a 
uh, Friday, but Ryan wouldn't go out with him on a Thursday night because he had to work the next day. And so he didn't, he didn't want to wake up being tired and work all day doing labor when you're hungover. So he was kind of responsible that way, except when it came to uh, working at the ski resort. So he would always be maybe five minutes late. He'd, he'd go and that was the conversation that Scott and him had because Ryan was snowboarding 36 days straight. He was so proud of it. Um, and so he would get up first thing in the morning. And as soon as the ski hill opened, he'd go do one or two runs, whatever he was doing. And so he would take the last run down that he could, and he'd slide in with his uh, snowboard into his place of work, quickly take off his, uh, his boots and uh, work. So he's always about three to five minutes late, I think, every That's single shift. Okay. And yet they did not mind. I'm, I'm surprised. They actually offered him a supervisor's position. I'm like, oh, look at you, Ryan, like you're making like gains in this. And he's like, oh, I'm not taking it. I'm like, well, like why? He's like, ah, it's too much responsibility for <laughs> 75 cents more. I was like, I'm not interested in it. I was like, fair enough. So, um, so he was late every single day. Again, I, I don't know if they just have that expectation that they were. They certainly knew he was coming in uh, snowboarding. So they had texted um, his roommates and said, hey, is Ryan coming in? So it must have been longer than five minutes. And so they, they, he said, they said, are you, is he there? So I think they just took a quick look around and said, no, he's like, it's not in his room. He's, he's not here. And so they just assumed that he had gone to, and so they texted and said, no, he's not here. Hmm. Well, the supervisor was busy and didn't catch the text and think until after the shift. And then um, she sent a message back to them saying, yeah, he never showed up today at all. And at that point, even though they'd only known him for two and a half months, they knew that was out of the ordinary. And then so suddenly they're looking and they're like, oh, his badges here, his work badges here. Um, his, um, his car is still there. Uh, so he didn't take the car up and all of his uh, equipment that he should have worn, he was not wearing. So at that point they're like, okay, so well maybe, and, and I think everybody wants to, and I, certainly that's what Scott and I were thinking as we were driving up, like maybe he's just with a girl. Like maybe he went and, and met a girl, hung out there. His phone is completely dead and he didn't go to work and he's, you know, just, he's hanging out, even though nobody believes it, but you'll believe, you'll buy anything. If it, if it gives you a, a, a some semblance of yes, hope. Of so sure. they certainly thought the same. Uh, they went ahead and uh, called uh, the roommate, the house where the party was, some of the people they knew and said, Hey, did Ryan sleep over? Like, did he? Like, no, I think they went on to the Facebook page that they had that's uh, particularly for the Sun, Sun Peak residents and, and locals that stay there and said, has anybody seen them? Then I think they started getting concerned because nobody ha ha responded. Nobody, nobody saw him that night. They ended up calling local hospitals down in Kamloops. And eventually I think the hospital, somebody must've said from the hospital, maybe you want to think about calling the police considering where he is he's not here there's just maybe it's time so at that point they phoned the police and uh reported ryan missing and in the same breath james wow. texted us to let us know that he hadn't shown up uh to work hadn't didn't look like he had come home the night before and that they had contacted the police okay so you and your husband get those texts or that or that call or whatever and then of course uh, i'm guessing you dropped everything and and drove up there. Uh, once again, you've probably kind of already talked about it. You're thinking, well, 
you know, maybe he's with a girl, maybe this, maybe that. But it sounds to me also you had some doubt in your mind whether that could be true or not. Um, what does happen? You know, you're driving up there. I'm sure that you and your husband are talking. It's private conversation. But just in general, um, you know, I think you told me in, in our first conversation, it was like the shortest drive and like the longest drive at the same time, you know, combined driving up there. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. So it's a nine, nine and a half hour drive. And we're driving uh, through the mountains. We have to drive through the, our national parks to get from Alberta to BC and continue on. So it's it's quite a, a winding uh, sort of, I want to say desolate road when you're traveling on that highway that time of night. Because we left here probably about 10 o'clock and arrived into Sun Peaks, I want to say about 6, 6.30 the next morning. So we drove through the night. No music, nothing. We just sort of sat there in this numbness and I, I I do remember saying to Scott like wouldn't I know like wouldn't I know if he was if he wasn't here anymore like wouldn't I get the feeling because I'm his mother like should I not um have some sort of presence or premonition or something along that lines and you know I my husband looks at me with the, you know all the pity he could muster in his eyes and he's like I I don't know and so I think you know we sat there for that entire drive. And I just, I, I thought, okay, cause it's really cold in, in Alberta. It's cold, but BC has nicer weather. So BC is, is so much more temperate. And I, I kept thinking, okay, so, you know, if it's minus two there, um, you know, he could, he could survive in a, a night out like this, you know, there's not, and I just kept thinking that. And as we drove almost every mile that we went by the the weather just kept dropping from where we were and it kept getting colder and the snow was falling and and you just um I think my heart and our hopes were just dwindling at that point going there's just no way if he's there he he could have survived this amount of time uh, out in the elements and and I wanted I I did. I, you know, you beg and you plead and you bargain with whatever higher power there is, like, you know, just whatever it is, just don't take him. Right. Like he's just a great kid. If, if there's reckoning that needs to be happening, you could, you can take me. Or if you promise to, to um, keep Ryan safe, you know, we'll ch I'll change my whole life. I will be so much different than who I was before. If that wasn't working, if that wasn't a good enough person, I will change everything I have. Just don't don't take my son yeah and uh it was it was hard and about 45 minutes outside of uh sun peaks is a town called barrier and i just remember scott having to stop from barrier on and he'd stop every 15 minutes he'd have to stop the car and he'd have to get out and i, I for him he just he, his heart was beating fast i don't think he could catch a breath I think I'm, I'm raring. To, I want to get up there. I want to face it. I want to, I want to be there. Scott was more, you know, we're in our last moments of normalcy because no one had called us. And at that point, I think Scott thought we're going to ride at the top of the hill and they're going to have found him and life as we knew it is over already. You're in that in between time, the notification of what your life was before and what it will come to be, but you're still in that, or I want to say purgatory, yeah. um, where anything could happen. Like, you know, we can, we can go any route. And so I think he was just wanting to sit in that moment a little bit 
longer to ha before having to face um, the ultimate nightmare. And we made it up, but we <laughs> sat behind uh, a snow plow that was going up from the bottom of the hill. It had snowed so much that you couldn't see anything. The snow was just packed high. And of course, so he, he waits so long to get there and then it takes even longer to get up because this, the snow plow is not going more than, you know, 20 miles an hour to go up the hill. So you're stuck behind it. And we arrived at the top of the hill and there was nothing. I mean, it was just this, this blank snow waiting for the, the sun to come up so that they could have search and rescue come out to search for him that day. And where did those uh, searches go? The way you were, of course, I know many will get into all the searches that have done since, but at the time, what were the best guesses from the people who knew Sun Peak the best? So Kamloops Search and Rescue comes up. They um, would have mobilized the night before, but of course, with it being um, dark out, they weren't able to come up until sunlight. We did have the RCMP with their canine unit. They were out as soon as they got the notification and they searched until the wee hours, I think of one to say two or three, and then they went home for a brief rest and then they came back the following day. But search and rescue probably came up by the time they were mobilized, they came up and had their command center set up and started the search about nine o'clock that morning and then went until, well, it got dark, would have been about four, 4.30 when it got dark. They still continued after that until about seven. And then we finally had gone back to our hotel room probably around 536 and then they came to see us shortly after they had shut down the search and I think that is the the toughest so they had not just their volunteers but they have what they call convergence so just ran, random volunteers from the the Sun Peaks area anybody that wanted to come out and do searching they would be uh, going certain things you know hitting houses knocking and seeing if I'm is there checking sort of outbuildings whatever they could and search and rescue would have would have coordinated the you know what they would normally do they're what they're experts at so there is sort of a probability of a timeline that goes associated with people go missing and so they look at 25 from where that was 25 50 and 75 and usually people are found within that perimeter and so they had the canine unit that was up there uh, I believe we had drones that were there they would have had their volunteers there. I think they had some people um, in snowmobiles kind of going through and doing all that. So we had one day of searching. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so uh, what kind of, like in all directions, in any particular direction, once again, I'm going to try to have a map and, and, and everything done so people can be familiar with the area so everybody can see that on our YouTube channel. But uh, in all directions, in any particular, like to the north particular, or the south, or just all directions. So Birdfield is, if you think about, there's only one way into Sun Peaks in the winter and one way out. Everything, okay. there's another one that's impassable. It's so much snow in it that it's not. It's sort of a gravel road that you can okay. meet up on the other side. So only one way into Sun Peaks and one way out. Ryan's house as, is on the main drag. So the main road is Sun Peaks Road. That's where his house is. Mm -hmm. uh, and then right behind it is a creek that runs through with trees on, on both sides, really heavy, dense forest with a creek running through it. And so Ryan, where the house was, Burfield, where the house where a party was, and then where Ryan was, it's not much of a difference. You could make it, I suppose in the summer, less than five minutes if you cross through the creek, but most 
people wouldn't do that. It's not easy going. Um, and certainly in the winter, the snow is too high. That would be near impossible for someone to sort of navigate that without snowshoes. So besides that, there's two ways to get home to Ryan's place from Burfield. He could come out of the house and turn left and go down the road to the end of the road and then take a left and go around the corner. And there's a path that you can go because there's so much people walking. They wanted to try to make it as safe as possible. So I believe prior to Ryan going missing about three years before that, they had somebody that had was injured in a hit and run. Um, wow. And so what they wanted to do is keep their, uh, their workers safe and, and residents and um, guests of Sun Peaks. So they had sort of below the road, they have a path and it's, it's lit and you, and it's paved. And so they can walk under sort of underneath the high of the road, walk through this path. And what it does is it pops up right near Ryan's house. Okay. So Ryan always walked that way, no matter where he was, that's the route that he knew for the two and a half months he was there. However, you could have come out of the house and turned right, and it would have taken to the end of Burfield, um, which had a bunch of um, old cars and storage units that were sort of packed in there in the snow. You, no one's moving in and out of there. It's, it's um, full of snow. Uh, but if you'd gone to the end, it's a ski out. And so people will ski out, go across and catch, uh, go across the road and then catch the um, ski lift that will take you up to the other side of the mountain. And so Ryan could have gone that way. He hadn't, hadn't at that point ever walked because it's quite a bit of snow. So great if you're wearing snow boots, if you're wearing shoes, it's probably not the best way to go, but it would be a quicker route because it's really super fast to go that way. Um, so at that point, they took the, where Ryan's house was and where he, he was at that night. And they did that probability based on the 25 50, 75 in that area without knowing which direction he, he okay. could have gone. Okay. All right. And so once again, though, we're not sure. We, we know that he left the party. We're just not sure if he made a left or a right when he went out the front door. Right. Nobody, nobody knows. Okay. Interestingly enough, um, him and James yeah. hung out all the time. What we've uh, got from the police is that when James went out of the house that night, he actually turned right um, and then went down that road and yeah. recognized that that was not, even though he could have continued on and made it to his house, um, he was not familiar with that route. So once he recognized that he was going the wrong way, he turned himself around and then went back the other wow. way. Okay, and we're going to certainly come back to that. All right, because I have that in my notes. Very interesting. Okay, so the searches are, are being done. But of course, you have to look at the other angle, which you've already talked about, the suspicious angle, uh, police. And we've already talked about these roommates and everything. But was there anything, at least initially, that when police were talking about people to people who were at these this party or these parties, these locations, that really maybe raised like a yellow flag to them? Anything like that that maybe... For example, this is just an example. Something could have happened at the party to Ryan and other people covered up. Anything like that popped up in any of the conversations that even like a suspicion of something like that? Nobody at the party um, raised any red flags at all. So it wasn't, they weren't on a list. They wasn't uh, where they've had problems in the past with certain individuals. Uh, nothing uh, along that lines. It was by, by and large, uh, relatively tame evening people just coming and going some people knew each other some people don't certainly i know that the top theories are you know uh ryan overdosed in the house um, um and 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 i'm i'm not saying that 
that scenario is, is not possible, but I look at the amount of people that were coming and going that did not know each other, whether you were drunk, whether you had been doing drugs or whether you were sober, um, you look at it and go, if you didn't know somebody very well, um, I can't imagine that if someone overdosed and we all tried to cover it up, why you would continue to allow people to come in and out of the house during that yeah. time. And then you're, you're all sitting there, you know, uh, panicked that they're going to find something uh, about this person and you're going to get in trouble. So I, I don't know why they wouldn't just shut it down, why they continue to allow people if that happened. The other thing is, is that I'm not sure if I was a person that was drinking and or sober and didn't give Ryan drugs that I would, if I don't know you that well, I'm not sure why I'm going to keep your secret for four and a sure. half years now. So sure. to me, it's hard to imagine um, that occurring, but I, I can't say for certain that it didn't. Um, so there was no, but there was nothing in the, there was nothing in the questioning though, that led them in that direction at all. Not at all. And everybody was very forthcoming. Uh, you know, they, they let police in the, the house that night to sort of look around. They, I think they were always like, like, this is what's, what's occurring and will help out as much as possible. So at that point, nobody gave off any, any suspicious, um, vibes. Okay, very good. Now you did talk about this uh, walk, either we're going one direction or the other direction. We realize you're going to give it in kilometers. I'll do my best to convert it to miles for everybody. Um, how many, how many minutes or how many kilometers, how long of a walk is it from where this party was to where Ryan was living? So I did a, um, a live Facebook video. I had a friend uh, video me walking from the house to so if I took the path that Ryan should have taken and again so at this point I was now weight bearing after my injury but I wasn't moving very fast so and and I wasn't moving fast in general so it, I, I would say it would take us it took me 18 minutes but I am thinking based on the temperature that would have happened in the fact that Ryan was a lot more physically fit than I was certainly at that moment it probably shouldn't have taken more than I'm going to say 10 to 12 minutes for him to walk home even faster. If it was that cold and someone's really trying to, to make it there right. a lot sooner. So okay. not, it wasn't far at all. Okay. So I would probably in, in miles, I'd say maybe a little under a mile, which is going to be probably a little longer than a kilometer, maybe yes. a, a kilometer and a third or something like that, because I'm usually figuring the average, uh, um, adult uh human walks about three to three and a half miles per hour so that's usually how we just do the calculation real quick okay so not far at all not far okay and we've talked about the weather but let's just talk about it again you said that it was cold minus 26 celsius but it was it snowing too that night so that could maybe have you know been a hindrance to his you know trying to get home as well was it actually snowing at the time he was walking home no, it, it did snow, started snowing heavily, but that, I don't believe that happened till after about 4.30 in the morning. Okay, so he left before uh, it would have snowed, but on that topic, we'll, that'll just take us to the next one. Maybe some people are thinking about what's snowing. We have footprints, you know, certainly if they come across maybe a set of footprints that are going off in a direction that everybody else's aren't. That might give something when, and at least to my audience, is a big deal because footprints have played a huge role in a disappearance. Now we know a murder of 
that I covered a couple years ago that's still ongoing. Uh, a missing uh, little girl who went missing in Colorado in 1984. Footprints were actually part of the trial. What can you say about footprints regarding Ryan's disappearance? Well, according to the Kamloops search and rescue manager is that um, they were able to tell if their footprints were old or new. Um, I'm, I'm not sure the exact technology in order to do that, um, but there were footprints uh, we have found at the end of Burfield. So if you went out right and you went down that path to go to that ski out, um, if you continued past that ski out, it's, it is a it's not a, a path that is plowed. It is, it, people take it and in the summer, they'll go biking. Uh, they could snowmobile down that. What it does is eventually lead up to the old service road that used to be one of the ways to get up and down a Sun Peaks. That's not really uh, uh, drivable now. We've, we have gone up there, but it's more of a, a service logging road. So right. that it's not like, you know, that is a road. There is a clearing between the trees. Um, there were footprints that went that way mm. uh, at the time. They were uncertain if they were the if they were old, if they were new, if they were the same size as Ryan's foot. I think they thought they were old. Of course, at that time, the snow uh, prints would have been hard to see because it did snow all day that Saturday. So uh, we that was our experience for the first two or three weeks. Is that we would have our search. Our, our volunteers go out and search and then you could come back and go to the same area that 10 people have sort of trampled all over and it looked like nobody had been there because the snow wow. fell so much it was a record right. year for snow. right and like you just said maybe when he left it wasn't snowing but maybe a few hours later it did start snowing so obviously there would be a footprints of his i don't know if you'd be able to distinguish his from anybody else's but either way by the time maybe the sun came up you might not be able to see there him anyway, no not his or anybody's. No, nothing at all. It snowed. It was dreary the next day. It was it was bad weather. Visibility was poor on, on that Saturday too. Okay, very good. Now, you did bring this up before. I don't want to uh, the har uh, harp on this too much, but being that we do have to talk about it, you talk about recreational drug use. What do we know about what was going on that night? Do you know if Ryan partook in that? Uh, Would have... What have you been told? You know, what do you know about that? Could it be a factor in his disappearance? Well, we knew that he had spent um, his two nights uh, at the bar uh, and one night. So clearly he was drinking more than he anticipated. Uh, so we know that there, the alcohol was a factor. It wasn't until after, I think it was a couple, it was a day later. And even though we had asked, like, was he doing something? Because I knew that he, you know, at, at that point, um, uh, marijuana was legal. And so Ryan would uh, smoke that every once in a while. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we were just saying, was he, had he had done anything like that? I, I don't know what I was expecting to be honest, but mm -hmm. James adamantly said, no, no, no. And then finally let search and rescue know. I, I want to say halfway through the first day of searching that, yeah, Ryan had taken MDMA, which is, I, it's a, it's a otherwise known as ecstasy. It's like yeah. probably known as ecstasy as well. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Not really familiar with it, but um, you know, what I understand from what people say is they sort of, uh, you know, lower those inhibitions. And maybe that was something Ryan was looking at when he was going out for the night to have that ability to go up and, you know, maybe be a little bit more involved in, in um, 
you know, hanging out with people, maybe meeting girls or whatever it was, right? Um, so uh, I was surprised, I suppose, that that he had done it. That's certainly not. Um, we, we don't we don't necessarily condone in our house. That isn't something okay. that I always said to my kids when they were growing up. Like, you know, I, I'm not sure why at at a teenager young years that you'd want to to um, do drugs uh, just because you don't know what the effects will be. And I always think, you know, we control so much as parents of what our children do. So essentially, I control what they wear by be, by allowing the giving them the money to to purchase their clothing or buying the clothing for them. You kind of choose their friends by allowing them either to come over or your kids to meet them. So I think as parents, we've always had so much control over our kids by, by the very nature of them being young children that I'm like, why would you want to give up the one thing that you have control over your, your body and that mind? Why would you want to do that uh, and do drugs? So that was always sort of our philosophy in the house. We, we, we didn't, uh, we didn't do it. We don't do it. Um, and so, uh, but he was an adult. Yeah. And so he made that choice. Uh, and quite frankly, there's no judgment from Scott and I, because whatever happened that night, you know, Ryan's paid the ultimate price because he's not here where he's supposed to be and doing what he was supposed to be doing. So I do believe he did MDMA. Okay. Did he do anything else? I don't know. Cause nobody, uh, nobody will, will tell us if, if something else played a factor in it. Did he, right. Yeah. Has anybody maybe in a position to know, I would not be, but in a position to know how that drug might affect somebody who was trying to walk home at, at two in the morning in that type of weather, anybody be able to tell you, you know, with any, of course, we, I think general for people who don't do drugs, we think about maybe like cocaine as being an upper. We think about heroin as being a downer. What would ecstasy do to somebody's, um, you know, metabolism? their perception if they wanted to walk home on a night that's very cold and it, even though it wasn't that far of a walk does anybody talk to you about that i think, I think I, you look at that in terms of also alcohol and i think that when you've had alcohol um you know when you're you fall down you don't really necessarily feel it in the same way you feel a little bit warmer i do think mdme has a has the ability to sort of uh regulate that temperature and make you a little bit hotter so I think that you're talking about uh, that kid that's going out and he did have a winter jacket on um, and he had a hat and he probably put his uh, um, hood up on his coat and would have had his hands in his pocket. So I think that he was probably fairly warm from the top up, uh, but he would have had, he had his vans on with, uh, I would say you can't see his socks, either no socks. I imagine he did wear socks, but uh, you couldn't see them. So his, his he would have had, like set stamping into snow would have been quite cold, but would he have yeah. recognized that in the same way with, with the drugs and alcohol? I don't know. And I, I don't know okay. what MDMA, how it affects certain people. Did Ryan think he was Superman and, and think he would, he could walk in the cold's not bothering him. He could walk a lot further and longer than he thought he was wanting to. He certainly was physically fit. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that, I know it would have had to play a factor in it. I just don't know what his mindset was. Okay, very good. All right, let's move on. We talked about uh, his phone records. Like you said, the last uh, text that he sent was well before uh, he was at this party that night and left this party. It was still when he was at work, like let's just say seven o'clock. We know no calls or texts going out or coming in during this time. But his phone was still pinging. What have you learned uh, about that? Was that any help 
you know, of course he's still missing. We know he's still missing, but how did that uh, contribute to any searching and what people thought about what might've happened? So they did a humanitarian ping. Ryan went missing. So early Saturday morning, when they got the notification Saturday night, early Sunday morning, uh, they pinged his, um, his phone. And the last known ping that they got was the previous morning. So I want to say about three o'clock in the morning in um, after he went missing. So three o'clock, the last ping that they had was in the Sun Peaks area. Now you would think that would be, you know, great in terms of, of looking at it, going that at least at three, that phone was still on him and yeah. it was in the Sun Peaks area. So you can narrow that down. However, we've been to, and so I used to, I did posts every single day. So I'd post on Facebook, no matter where I was. And depending on where I was in this village, it actually will indicate a different uh, space. So it doesn't always just say, oh, she's posting in Sun Peaks. It could say I was posting um, on Chase, which is on the other side of the mountain, Pinatown, mm. which is on the other side of the mountain. And so I can't say that the towers are that efficient for recording one of the stars managers told us that they had um they were looking for uh, a missing person in the a lake called shushwap lake which is a distance from from uh, sun peaks all the way down and then another hour or so wow. and having their phone pinged it actually pinged in sun peaks and it wasn't Right. And they knew it. They, they knew that. But so you we can't get a, an accurate sense of, yes, his phone pinged in Sun Peaks. Does that mean he was in Sun Peaks or his phone was lost? Was lost. So. OK. And there was also a concern. Uh, we, once again, in a prior conversation, we talked about that it's very possible that, you know, when he got home from work before he went out, the odds of him actually charging his phone maybe not too high. So this by the time one or two in the morning of the next day comes out, he might've been low on his battery as it was. And, and the cold temperatures would have drained it even further and faster. Okay. Okay. And what kind of phone uh, did he have? Uh, iPhone or Android phone? Do you, do you even know? Yeah, no, he had an iPhone. He had to uh, replace it. I think he'd lost it or something like that. So he had replaced it in 2017, the summer of 2017. I want to say, Okay. I don't even know what it's been four years, so many updates now in phones. It's all right, yeah, just the Android or okay, that's, that's totally fine. Yeah. So it was some sort of smartphone and it was fairly, fairly new. Yes. Because once again, you get to these older, if you had a phone that's five or six years old, then you have a battery maybe that is not as, as efficient for a charge. Okay, so probably going on the idea that he had gone to work, didn't charge his phone before he went out. Um and you know, and maybe maybe that 3 a.m. that it could have just been that the battery died doesn't necessarily mean that he turned it off or something bad happened. It very well could just be that the battery died. Right. Okay. I think the battery died a lot sooner than that. We had indications, mm -hmm. I think, from his phone provider that said that um, the battery wasn't. Uh, so the ping will give you the last ping. That's when they've mm -hmm. done it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that's the last time the phone was turned on. It just means that's the last location they had with whatever memory I think was left in there. Okay. Now you've already uh, talked about this once, but I do want to come back to this because I think it's a very important point. And this is regarding the, the roommate who left uh, and went the wrong way. Uh, let's just go over that 
uh, maybe again. Uh, is this James that had this happen to him? It was James. Uh, have you talked to him about that? And did he ever say, well, you know what? The reason I went right, even though it sounds to me like left is the better direction to go going out the door, he went right instead. Has he ever been able to explain that to you? Did he just get lost? Was he confused? What, what did he have to say about this? Because this could be a very important part of Ryan's disappearance. So, I mean, James and Ryan have been friends since I want to say about 14, maybe sooner, but I think about 14. And so um, I always need to tell people because I know that that always suspicion lies uh, certainly on the roommates, certainly with his friend. Um, and and I think it's just the behavior after, you know, I always look at and say, you, you know, I look at who I am now and I would be out there searching. And we certainly met lots of young um, people that came out and were very involved in the search. James was, was he did search certainly the first day and then uh, sporadically through the, uh, the first week as Ryan's friends came up from Beaumont, they drove up to, to help with the search. And so I think there's a lot of, you know, from our friends and family, there's a lot of um, curiousness about him uh, not searching the way we think he should have. And I'm not sure that's necessarily fair. I think people process things in different ways. So I don't necessarily, and I have a different view because I had uh, James uh, work at the airport um, uh, for another company and he would work underneath so they would marshal the flights in and unload baggage that sort of thing so sometimes his shifts would correspond when I was working a night shift so he'd finish his shift uh earlier and he would go to uh, you know our resident Tim Hortons uh that's on every corner uh coffee so there's one in the airport mm -hmm. and it's open 24 hours so he would go down and and get a tea for me and bring it up and he would sit there and he would chat with me and so my experiences with James had always been a little bit different. Um, you know, I, I've known him for a long time. He'd come and visit me as an adult and we'd have uh, conversations. And, and so I always looked at who his personality was. Um, and I, I always think that you can't ask someone to do more than what they're capable. And I just never thought that James was capable in that sense of, of going above and beyond. And I, and I don't mean that in a mean way. I, I, it's just hard for me to explain that. So um, when this happened, uh, James processed, I think, his grief differently and it didn't share a lot with us. We, we got him some grief counseling when he was up there. Um, I don't know if he just turned into himself. Him and Ryan were really close. And, and I will say up until the moment Ryan went missing, I believe he thought, and I still, and I do believe even now that he thought those friends were his friends. And I don't think that's changed. So I, I don't say that, you know, they've done something nefarious because they yeah. have vetted through um, and their stories have all matched and, and there's no suspiciousness from, from them. Okay. Uh, so I, I do think that James sort of shut himself down and then people, you know, the public was, were not very nice. You, you get your keyboard warriors that the people that oh, yeah. have never been yeah. there, don't know us, don't know the situation yeah. that feel the need to weigh in. Um, and so certainly the roommates and the party growers got the brunt of that. Yeah. Um, uh, James certainly got the brunt of that. And I think that he was just overly cautious about sharing things. So the information about him leaving and going, uh, turning right. I don't even know if we heard except from the police, weeks later that wasn't a conversation that he necessarily had with us but from what i'm able to to say is that i think 
that they'd only gone to the Sunday Funday house, the house that they were last seen at, only a handful of times. They actually had gone and spent most of the time at this one place called the Wolf's Den that were more in line with the people that they knew. And if you, where Wolf's Den was, you came out, you'd always turn right. That's the way that you would go. So you would come out of that house, you would turn right, and then you would turn left to go down to the path. So if James and Ryan took, let's say they both took the wrong turn, certainly they would have gone out and Ryan could have gone to the S, come out of the house, turned right, which he was normally used to at the other house. And then he would have taken a left as well and still would have had that same sort of path that gets plowed every single day because it's a snow or a ski out. So there is that thought that he could have gotten himself mixed up. I just think that James probably either hadn't drank as much or hadn't done the same amount of MDMA, although he did do it that night, um, that he was able to to catch his bearings and then turn himself around. All right. So he might have thought just for a moment, thought he was at one other other house and not the one he was at. And once he started to go, oh, wait a minute, this isn't right. And he just turned around. Just turned I, around I, and went back the I other direction. Guess. I have to yeah. guess that because okay. if there is that isn't a conversation we've ever had with James and we don't oh, okay. have any contact with him now. Most of his friends don't either anymore, which is kind of an unfortunate oh. um, byproduct of, of this all. Okay. All right. Let's move on to this. And um, let's talk about what I just have in the notes called an alleged witness uh, I'm not sure what to make of this, but it's out there. I thought I'd give you an opportunity to comment on it, talk about it. Some guy, it's I, I, from what you've told me, it doesn't sound like this was very close to this last house where the party was, but still, you don't know. Why don't you just tell this guy who uh, said he heard something? Why don't you just talk about that? And I think that the the gentleman that heard something, you know, he did his due diligence. Um, yet after Ryan had gone missing, he remembered uh, an event that happened that night. And so he did his due diligence and, and called the police and reported it. So he did everything he was supposed to have done. I, I sort of feel bad because the, the fallout from that is, is having that information out there. And every single time I have to, I have to add some sort of clarification around it because, um, when the article came out, uh, I think that it was, Speculative. I think that's what the goal was to make the article speculative. Um, and so when they talk about, in one breath, the reporter asks um, whether um, the police, if they have anything that they need to be concerned about, and they say no, and then they mention this. And they, and they didn't explain that when this person heard get in the car, get in the effing car. This is what that, the witness heard and reported. Okay. But when they mentioned it in the article, they left it just like that. So they didn't give any context behind yeah. it. And, and I'm, so we're left um, having to deal with the aftermath of, of, you know, the page exploding, Ryan's Facebook page exploding with all these people going, well, this is it. This is, must be it. And I'm like, okay, but you have to understand from where Ryan was, the house was, where the gentleman heard that um, that sound or that that whole uh, exchange was a good 20 minutes back towards the village. Now, I'm not saying it couldn't happen uh, at all. Uh, however, uh, we had people that lived in that area that we have known since then and have met through the community that were out that night and never heard anything. So 
you know, what, what is the relevance? I don't exactly know. I just wish there had been more, if you were going to tell something that you would tell the whole story that like the timing might not have matched, um, that, that the distance was so great that, um, you know, why would he be walking that way? It's not that he couldn't have walked that way. It would just, wouldn't have been something he had done before, but you know, it could have been a perfect storm of things that happened uh, that night that he went and did, took a different route. But the police were able, nothing else came from that. There was nobody that that had that happen or there would be no reason why this would happen to Ryan. He's six foot, 180 pounds, quite muscular. Why someone would target him and tell him to get in the car. Or if I guess he was hit by a, a car and they were telling somebody else to get in the car um, people wouldn't have heard the crash because the, the sound, obviously it, it, it's, it's almost like a bowl. It, it really, the sound yeah. does come through. So there was just nothing that, that allowed the police to sit there and go, there's another, uh, that we need to do. There, there's no more investigation that can be happening at this time. So I always say to people, yes, it could have absolutely happened. The, the man heard what he heard and he reported it as he, as he did. I just thought it was interesting that before this was reported, we had no idea. We had lived in this community for four and a half months and had gone back every single year after, or every month after that and spent a week that nobody, that we never heard that at all. We'd heard all sorts of things, but we never heard about this exchange until the, that interview came out. So that was, a, that was a little weird for us, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but I also like to tell people that you know, the, the police have, I want to say they have a column that's kind of like question mark things that, that happen, or they've had information about that. They've investigated as far as they can, but nothing gives them cause to look other way. So it'll sit in that column until something else comes up and they can either say, okay, we can cross it off the list or we put it in this column as being done or that we need to investigate more with this new information. No other new information has come out about that. So They've done as most as they can, whether it's relevant or not at this point, I can't say. Uh, Just to uh, clarify something, you said it was 20 minutes away. Would that be by walking or by driving? By walking. By walking. So 20 minutes. So now we're getting, yeah. So, uh, you know, um, a little bit further away, maybe 50% further away than uh, Ryan would have been walking to his own house. And in particular, it would have been maybe in the opposite direction or something like that. Yeah, it was right back up to the village where they had already left. So there would be no reason to be walking back up to the village. Nothing was open. I thought the pizza place was open, um, but the pizza place would have been closed by two o'clock. So there would be no reason. Ryan had never done that before. Did he know the hours? Did he know that he could get pizza at that point? But um, there's there's no indication that he he went and the, and the police did look in that particular area. There's um, people that have security cameras. Obviously, it's a ski resort. People coming in and out. Um, so a lot of people use that as a deterrent. And there was nothing in the video in that area at that time to indicate that um, something happened. Okay, but we should also say, you know, maybe the counter argument to that is if this actually happened, where somebody did say get in the effing car, that person who yelled that or said this. Has not been has not been found either. That's absolutely. That's like that's like the counter argument, I guess. But I just want to state that well, that the police, of course, looked into this, but they actually haven't found who said this, so we just don't know. And and was it said? Was it something else? Was it was it? Did it even happen at all? 
Right. So, yeah. And so. I, I don't, I hate to say it didn't happen because I don't mm. think this, this man is a community member. I don't know if he lives up there anymore, but, uh, or even lived there, or he was just renting it. So I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I, I want to say that he, you know, misrepresented okay. himself, but, but maybe what he heard is not exactly in the same context. I, I, I don't, it know. could be the same words, but it could be just somebody joking around. They weren't mad right. at all. They were, Oh, get in the effing car, you know, and just, you know, joking around, not in a serious way in a joking right. way. Okay, certainly possible. Uh, let's move on to this. And I just want to make sure um, we're, we're clear on something regarding that night. Once again, to this day, and we're doing this interview on May 15th of 2022. It, it, still, at this point, all these years later, nobody has ever said, I saw Ryan leave. I said goodbye to him or he came over to us and slapped me on the back and said, hey, I'm out of here. I'm going home. We don't have we have a lot of information about him, his motions and things that night and, and people he saw. But it, when it comes to the specific point of him leaving that party, it seems that he kind of just left the party all on his own, didn't say goodbye to anybody. Yeah, I would I would say that. And and the level of what um, the amount of how, how much he had drank and what his state of mind was is also mm -hmm. another thing that we're not exactly sure. So you talk to some people, they're like, oh, he looked like he was stumbling. He looked like he could barely hold himself up. And then other people are like, oh no, he was completely fine. So you're asking really drunk people to remember somebody else who's been drunk and saying, oh no, they were fine. And you're like, how can you tell yeah. which metrics? Yeah, the perception is tough when we start and we don't even have to bring any sort of drugs, just alcohol it, it, on, all on its own uh, can alter people's perceptions. But once again, you know, it's, it'd be hard for me to imagine everybody's so drunk that they don't remember Ryan leaving. It just seems that he left and just didn't say goodbye to anybody. That's the best information we have right now. Absolutely. Okay. Now, um, let's move on to this. You know, we've talked about since, of course, this happened, you've gone up to Sun Peak organizing searches, doing searches on your own. And I thought it was very interesting that, you know, you talked to me about how hard this is to do, especially considering the weather and you have to get particular kinds of days and everything. Why don't you uh, explain, you know, maybe because a lot of people might just think, well, you just go up there and start searching. Yeah, we know it snows and everything. But other than that, you've told me you have to pick particular times on when to do this. Why, why don't you talk about that right now, the difficulties of doing searches? So when we went up to, to, to when we got the notification, we went up to Sun Peaks. And as I said, the Kamloops Search and Rescue did one day of a full search. And then they came to our room that night and said, you know, so we hadn't found him. Uh, but in the same breath, they said, you know, it's quite possible that he is, could be in an outbuilding, a shed or a basement, because a lot of houses were still being built at that time. So maybe he was tired, maybe he was disoriented, maybe he was confused, whatever it was, maybe he went into this and got himself sort of stuck in there. And uh, so I just remember them telling us that night, and then they're saying, so we won't be coming back until there is a change in, in um, information, a change in environment. So we'll get new information, we'll go search there. Or if the, if the snow melts, there's, there's the possibility to uh, us to come back and do that. And so we won't be back until that, that happens. And I thought, okay, so I'll see you tomorrow. Cause I thought, you know what? I know they're not gonna have a whole group of people but there should be somebody still searching. I did not know uh, that that was not the case that there would be nobody the next day. And so when we showed up at the command center that they had set up for us uh, on the Monday, we looked around and had been changed right back into the, the ski patrol center that it was 
before we had even got there. And in that moment, I, Scott and I recognized that if Ryan was going to be found, that it would be through our means and that we would have to do it. And I, I just can't imagine any parent sitting there. I'm just going to let uh, someone trip over our child like they're, they're trash and, and have someone find them because they're out hunting or their dog. Like I just, I mean, it's heartbreaking. This whole experience is heartbreaking enough that I just couldn't imagine my son being treated in, in such a way. And so Scott and I were like, no, we'll stay until the snow melts and we will search. I don't think that's what we thought in the beginning. I think we'll, we thought we will just search and we'll find him two days, three days. And then, you know, the days get a little bit longer um, and we search a little bit more and we didn't know what we were doing. So we set this command center up and we were lucky. We had so many volunteers. I would say that over the course of this four and a half years, we've had over 1200 volunteers. And I would say 70% of them have come more than once. We've had two bus loads that they fundraised for uh, to come from Edmonton. So right Beaumont, Edmonton uh, close. Uh, they stopped in Red Deer, they stopped in Calgary, they picked up volunteers and uh, drove up. So I think it was like a 12 hour um, bus ride to come up so they could search one day and then leave the following morning and go back home. And so we had them come up twice for that. We also had them fundraise and bring a whole plane and fill up a whole charter plane and uh, go to the Kamloops uh, airport so that they could spend two days, full days of searching. So we've had tons of volunteers that have come up, but that's something that my husband and I were having to coordinate our own. And I think there's a certain amount of, I, you know, when you think about it, it, that to me is heartbreaking to think that people missing people don't have those kind of resources that they're not in place to have something. And so I remember my husband saying, well, we just need, give us the tools, give us, give us the information to, to conduct the searches. And because maybe, you know, we're in a society that is quite litigious that they, they'll, you know, we sue for everything. And so they didn't want to give us that information in, in, in the event that somebody got injured and then it could come back to them. So no information was given to us at all on how to conduct searches. So we had to research that. And we thought we did okay for the first three weeks. We'd send, we'd have 50 volunteers and we'd send 10 of them to five different places and then come back. But I could never get the sense that the places had been searched well if you go over there the snow would fall you couldn't even tell somebody had been there and even myself searching i couldn't come back and i'm his mother i want him found like nobody else besides right. my husband yeah but i couldn't even get a sense that i knew that we had searched something completely so it was about three weeks in and we had gone along this path and what i ended up doing is i was going in and we started digging and so there was four of us that sat there and started digging and we were right beside each other, digging, digging, digging. And then I called everybody else. My husband, he brought a whole bunch of volunteers. They had finished. And we spent the rest of the day going from top of this path all the way down this incline. And we searched it. And it was the first time in three weeks that we felt walking away that Ryan could be anywhere, but we knew he wasn't there. And we hadn't ever got that impression before. So that changed our way of thinking is that we would have to do it more systematically, that we wouldn't do um, take a, 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 a area 
and do 10% with a hundred people and say that we've, we've done it. We would do that area and we would do it a hundred percent. And if it took us longer, we would stand and we would do it. And so we sort of mimicked a lot of search and rescue techniques just from reading about it, watching them, um, talking to whoever we could. We had to come up and fashion our own equipment, how we were going to search in snow. So we'd get ski poles, take them off. We'd have to get these markers because the snow was anywhere again from eight to 14 feet. Now, certainly Ryan wasn't going to be at the very bottom of that. So you had to figure out how much snow would have fallen and what would your, your percentage be where you would go down. And what does that feel like when you're putting um, something into the snow and you hear, you got to know what hitting a rock sounds like, hitting dirt sounds like. Um, if you hit something else, you sort of were able to distinguish the, the feel and the weight of that, as well as the sounds of that. Uh, so we did a lot of search and rescue and we would go through places and, and we would be able to say, okay, we've done it. But the problem with um, the temp or the weather there is it, it's hard to tell. So you've got maybe a week between when the snow melts and when the underbrush comes up. And that is so thick with, they've got, um, it's devil's club, I think it's like, so thistles that you can't walk through without them catching onto everything and just tearing at your skin. So you have to worry about that. Plus there's wildlife. So bears and cougars, uh, foxes, which you probably don't have to worry about so much, uh, but that sort of thing. So you have, to, you have to be careful of your surroundings as well. So you've got a week. And without knowing what direction Ryan took, it's, it's really difficult. And we yeah. were doing it search and rescue. So last March or May, we had tactical come up for the first time in the three years. And they, did, they do it shoulder to shoulder. They're looking for that needle in the haystack, the gun shell casing. They're looking for the evidence. And so they tend to get right down on the ground and they stand right next to one another and they will go up one direction and they will come back the same because you'll look at it from a different perspective. We have now taken that and said, okay, that is how we're now going to mimic our search efforts. No longer search and rescue is designed is to look for people that uh, would require rescuing that may be unconscious. So you try to get as much of the area done as you can. We are not looking for rescue. And so we have sort of transitioned into looking at whatever. We're not going to find Ryan the same way he was four and a half years ago when he was missing, we're looking for items that may be attributed to him, like his keys, because he, he took his keys by accident in his coat pocket. Um, you know, the hat, the shoes, the phone, his wallet, that sort of thing. That's the kind of thing that we are now looking for. And you've been doing, of course, a lot of this uh, over the last four and a half years. How many, um, maybe you even have this written down or just off the top of your head, how many hours, if you could convert that maybe into days, how many days, hours, weeks have you spent looking for him in the last four plus years? Well, when we moved, we left here on the 18th that night, we arrived on the, we arrived there on the 18th, sorry, and then started searching on the 19th of February. And we searched every single day. We'd be at the command center by eight in the morning. Uh, and we would search until sun went down. So it started at four, then it would go to five. So usually we would finish the day at five. And we searched every single day, seven days a week until June 19th. We left uh, to come home for uh, Jordan's graduation. And then we would go back up 
every month until COVID hit in uh, March of 2020. We went up every single month and we would spend um, five days minimum and search. So I, I would say that we have a lot of search and rescue hours under our belt yeah, in yeah, all yeah, trades. Yeah, yeah. you, you can't even add it all up. Yeah, yeah you can't all add it up. And the, the listeners know, I mean, you know, I've t- done uh, covered 250 disappearances uh, by this time, and we don't theorize it. But obviously, the the I'm sure the listeners and viewers are getting the idea that you do not believe that, you know, Ryan is with us anymore. Of course, we hope he is. You know, maybe something really, really strange. It would obviously have to be something very unique for him to have happened, for him to still be alive right now. It's, these things happen. Okay. Um, you know, there's no facts to, to, that undermine the idea of maybe foul play. Could have happened. I guess there's nothing ruling that out. But doing all these searches, is, is there anything that maybe jumps into your mind is why you haven't found him yet? You, it sounds like you've been doing searches as much as anybody I've ever had on this program. Um, any idea, you know, that you haven't found him yet? Because we have to start thinking about how far could he have really gone, you know, that night. What, what, what do you, what do you think about that? And I think that it was interesting because when we, I mean, we had been doing search and rescue for three and a half years uh, and we were doing that. We would go uh, sort of a shoulder length apart. We would try to hold the line and we would go through and we'd walk through an area. Um, however, you, you look at, uh, you know, I get something in my eye or look at you and go, how's it going? And have a brief conversation while I'm talking uh, to you. And then I continue to walk and then you go, did I miss these places in between? Because certainly we're not looking for a six foot. And I don't even know what the circumstances in which he went missing. So let's just yeah, say he right. go missing, and there was no foul play that he wandered off. Um, so, you know, did he recognize that? Did he curl up? Was he in the fetal position? Was he trying to keep warm? I, I don't know what that looks like. Was he splayed out in all six like footness uh, of him, right? Like what did that look like? So without knowing that uh, it's hard to, to imagine what, what we what state we were going to find them in and and how that was going to look but you could bypass something and not see it and it wasn't until we looked at the more tactical approach where you're going if we stood shoulder to shoulder and so when tactical came out they actually went down a road that we walk all the time that that it's well like it's that path that in the summertime people go by all the time and they found right off this path uh, a rescue or search and rescue radio that was dropped there within the, well, had to been the first day or so that they were searching for Ryan. So we didn't even get that. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I don't want to say that we aren't efficient without having the experience use yeah. it, it make shift on how you're doing it. I think we're so much better now. And I think the other thing is, is that we go through, so I have come when we met uh, with a, a lady who was a grief counselor up in Sun Peaks. I was just frantic. I was like, oh, what if, you know, what if this happened to him? What if he's been, you know, he, he's been murdered? What if he, someone's beaten? Like all those terrible things that run through anybody's mind and especially worse for, you know, the families of the loved ones that go missing. It's just a natural cause. And I just remember our, the, the counselor saying to me, she goes, you need to stick with the facts because all you know is Ryan was here and then Ryan wasn't. There's no other facts that support anything else. And so every single time you create a scenario, it's a, it's an, an alternate reality. 
it, it doesn't necessarily have uh, bias. So you're right, Ryan could have been hit by a car and someone panicked and dumped him. Um, you're right, Ryan could have been, um, had an overdose and the people in the house have covered it up, um, that he was targeted, that you know any of those things could have happened. Um, but if I, I don't know which one they could be. And so if I start thinking that way, I think that, um, that every action and reaction I have comes from a place that has no facts to it. So for the most part, I really do try to stick with the facts. So I will go at this point in time going, Ryan is um, missing in that he wandered away. He was disoriented. Uh, there's no other uh, indication that he'd left uh, willingly um, that uh, that he was, um, you know, suffering some sort of a mental health crisis that he felt the need to no longer be here. Uh, none of those indications uh, have led us there, not to say it hasn't happened. I just stick with what I know. So I believe Ryan went missing. Um, and my husband, because he's the fixer, he was out there searching uh, every single day. Mm -hmm. He goes in between where he's known that he has searched and what he has searched and, and that's difficult for him. And so sometimes he goes in between, yes, he's missing. No, someone must've done something to him. Yes. He's missing. No, someone. And so um, I think that provides us that balance of, you know, we're not missing anything because we, we think of all the scenarios and anything could have happened. But when we were searching, we'd spent a time up in the sun peaks area from where he was, we'd search a little bit a day or two. And then, Scott's like, okay, I really want to go here. What if someone dumped him? So now we're, we're not actually spending a full week looking at, at, at anything. And so one of the, the uh, officers with this, um, the tactical, he had this wonderful analogy that I, I then stole and then made it more so. Mm -hmm. But he talked about um, painting a, a wall, that when you paint a wall, that uh, you go over with the first coat and there's lots of patches. And that's kind of where the search for Ryan is in that first patchy coat of paint. And then you go into another room and then you go into another room and then you look around and none of the rooms are really done. They're all patchy and spotty and you can't even remember which one you went to first and all the rest. So I look at Sun Peaks area from the bottom of the hill to the top of the hill being this entire house. And so we, we prioritize what rooms are important. And instead of now going, well, we're gonna do half of a wall here, or we're gonna spend an hour painting this, and then we're gonna move on to somewhere else. We've now said the best way for us to really have an understanding of where we've gone is to paint one room. So we're gonna do the one side, and then we're gonna make sure that we go over it. And then we're gonna cross and we're gonna go the, do the other side of the wall until the, the entire room is done. And then we can say with some certainty that this is not where he is and then we can move on. But there's so much area that's up there and you're right. How far could he have walked? How could he, yeah. far could he have gone if that was the scenario? But then I also have to play into factor. What if someone did something to him and someone uh, dumped him somewhere? Right. And where where would that be up in the area? And then we'll have to look at those areas as well. How much uh, and this is uh, the reason I'm asking this is because I think we've learned the hard way on Unfound is some people who have gone missing uh, like Ryan did. And it turned out eventually the reasons uh, the, the original searches at the time when these people went missing is because certain landowners didn't allow any searchers on on their particular pieces of property. And then maybe 
they had a change of heart or there was some eminent domain where government officials went on there and coincidentally found remains have you any have you had any issues like that in your in your searches where some landowners may be like now we don't want you coming on our land I would say, I mean, Sun Peaks, the community has been beyond uh, amazing, uh, you know, because they don't always get, when you have these stories that go on, there's certain people that naturally assume that if something happened nefariously, that it was within this community, within the community members. And I get that. I probably would have done the same if I heard the story outside of that. However, getting to know this community, they're, they're an amazing community that raised their children there, that have businesses there, that supported our family. And there's so many little ways that they could have made us feel unwelcome coming back and, you know, having this exposure on so many different channels and, and news articles, that sort of thing, that they could have shown us in little ways that we weren't welcome there. And yet we have never gotten that impression. We have made so many close friends um, that are part of our lives now and so we've never had really any any landowners that was certainly on that burr field and we had them going through digging through piles of snow because scott did that taking shovels so every snow bank was totally demolished on that road and then one of our um well he's a very dear friend but he turned out to be our one of our search he was our search lead he was he was the coordinator after a while uh, very meticulous uh, he actually fired me from my searching job because i didn't come <laughs> wearing the, the proper equipment with the proper stuff he's like until you can get your stuff i was like well i just came out to see how everybody's doing he's like well you're distracting them so you need to leave i was like jerry so so jerry is this amazing person and what he did was take every single group and he'd go into a backyard and they could, it could take him a day, a day and a half to go through every single backyard. They would go through shoulder to shoulder. They would, they wouldn't be more than it's almost like that tactical thing. Mm -hmm. And they would go through all the snow and not one. We had tape up there. We had spray paint, not one owner really, really complained. Even when we came back more than once when the snow melted, nobody even though they had been out and they, their kids were playing out there or the dogs were out there they never ever said we would prefer if you didn't come back some of them said hey well we have coffee for you hey if you need to use the bathroom you're more than welcome to come in and use our 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 facilities that sort of thing so we hadn't now have is there a landowner that we have tried to see that you know i we haven't reached that point yet okay um, so I, I, I would say that we, we've been fortunate if you can consider that okay. to be fortunate. Because um, very early on in Unfound's existence, we had the disappearance of Crystal Morrison and went missing in North Carolina. Big searches all over the place, very strange circumstances, very unique circumstances. And what happened there was that she was found on private land. They were gonna be widening a road. Some surveyors had the, the permission because the local government to go onto a person's property and they found Crystal's remains not far off the highway, but it wasn't originally searched. And this was like nine years later, nine years before that, that they weren't allowed on the property. And these these surveyors came across the remains. No foul play. Uh, we believe that she just succumbed to the weather. And then much more recently, Brandon Lawson, which is a well-known disappearance here in the United States and Texas, where very unique circumstances. He had called 911. 
Uh, he might have uh, been on something. He's kind of given the you know the idea that somebody was after him. Bunch of searches done in Texas could not find him. And then once once again recently, we found out that there was a person back at the time who didn't allow searchers on the land. I think that the land changed uh, ownership. There was some media member in Texas who got permission then to go on. They found Brandon's remains. This is why I'm asking you, you know, something, you know, like this. Whereas I think in both situations, had these landowners been a little more accommodating, both of these people would have been found probably not very long after they went missing. That's why, you know, that's why I'm asking you that. And, and we always do, even um, through the the nonprofit that I, I co-founded with another family, is that we always make sure that when our searchers go and look that they receive the landowner's permission because there's nothing worse than someone, I, I understand the urgency that comes from that. Um, however, uh, you, you never want to have uh, to foster a, an unhealthy relationship with the, the people that you're trying to get cooperation from. And so I can't imagine why somebody wouldn't allow someone to come on, uh, even if it's in a small, like it's, I, I don't want a hundred people on my land. Okay, that's, that may be fair. Um, what what can we do to yeah, search yeah. this area that would be less intrusive? Um, and you would think that appealing to people's um, humanity that they would allow it. I can't imagine why somebody would not, I suppose. Yeah, it, it, yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah. But, you know, once again, just those are just off the top of my head. So mm -hmm. I'm sure there are many more instances, at least in the United States, uh, where that has happened. And I would, there's no doubt in my mind, some of the disappearances that we've had here, that people who are still missing, their remains are on private land and they, you know, no foul play or anything. And they just haven't been found yet because somebody didn't allow searches to go on land. There's no doubt in my mind that's going on right now. I can't tell you which disappearances those are. I really don't know, but I'm sure it's happening right now. So I felt that I needed to give you an opportunity to talk about that in case you ran into anything like that yourself. Yeah. Uh, it sounds to me, you know, uh, you know, and, and talking about all of this, obviously, you've been very busy, probably as busy as any guest I've had on the program, as much as you've talked about going back to Sun Peaks and, uh, you know, doing all of this work and being involved. But, you know, once again, though, I still have to ask you, uh, what have the last four years been like? I mean, just, you know, can you can you even put it into words? You know, if you had asked me five years ago um what our lives would be like with having a child that's it's not a child he's a young man but our son gone missing i would have told you i would have been in the fetal position i, I couldn't even imagine it we're I, I suppose every family says we're close right um but ordinary family such as it was but i mean we were close we we do uh, you know had these constant conversations uh always probably to the point of the kids <laughs> wanting to block out our our, some of our conversations, you know, wanting to, to know and giving our, our wisdom and expertise, but we were, we were a close family. And I just, I, I couldn't even have imagined where we would be. And the fact that, you know, we're, we're stronger as a family, we're more connected as a family. There's a lot of lessons that have come from this, the, you know, the moments of being present, the, the, the time of, you know, I never wanted to get my picture taken because I didn't, you know, eyes are closed or I didn't wear something or I didn't think I looked my best or something like that. And now you look back through a lifetime of photos and 
I'm not in them or, uh, you know, I just like take the photos. Like there's so many things that we've learned about ourselves. There's so many people that we have met that, you know, they, and they realize this and they recognize that these friendships only exist because our, our child went missing. That if they, if we could change the circumstances, we would happily never have met any of them. And they know that. And they'd say they would happily not have met us. So our lives have, have turned upside down. Um, but I, I, I never want, and my husband, we're very, we're very certain about this. We never want sympathy for, for our situation. We talk about Ryan a lot. We try to share our stories, uh, with people, but we never do it for the purpose of getting sympathy for ourselves, because this is just a horrible emotion that we're going through this, this despair and this grief. And this tragedy, but at the end of the day, the only person that you should be feeling sorry for is Ryan, because he's not living the life he should be living right now. Um, we want to raise awareness, not just for Ryan. I, I recognize that this is the one physical thing I can do for my son. It's the last physical thing I can do for him to go up and search because he matters and he and I, I want to bring him home and I want to find closure. I'm also reconciled to the fact that we may never have those answers. That you could be in a wonderful person and live uh, a a life that broaches really just on sainthood and still not find what you're looking for. There is no rhyme or reason why that happens. So, but what I, I hope that we do through what, what we have learned in our searching is that we can provide that support and resources for other families that are just beginning this journey. Um, because there is no handbook. There is nothing that tells you how to navigate through, you know, mediums and intuitive people, how to navigate through the, the many, um, the uh, public uh, or uh, private investigator offers that you can get or the money you can spend and whether it's, it's yeah, uh, worth it or not, how to deal and have a, um, a collaborative uh, relationship with law enforcement when that's not necessary. I mean, and, and it's difficult depending on where you are and, and how receptive they are, but it's not like you can fire them if they're not doing a good job. It's not like you can sit there and go, I'm going to take my business elsewhere. So how do you navigate through those relationships with them? How do you deal with those war keyboard warriors that will just, I, I still get to this um. Day, um, horrible, horrible messages that people feel is is well within their rights to send me that tells me, you know, either this is my fault or, you know, we haven't done enough or we've hindered the investigation or we should have done this or we should be leaving Sun Peaks. All their suggestions, not having known it uh, and think that it's okay to, to send that to families that are grieving. Like we've learned a whole lot about it. I wish these were lessons that we didn't have to learn but I've also come to the realization that for us personally, it is not enough to survive. I don't want to just survive. I never want to stand in front of Brian one day, however that looks in whatever form that may be, and have him so disappointed that he would have lived his life differently and wasn't given the opportunity. And we are, and we've decided to squander our entire lives on grief alone. I don't want to do that. I want to find a way to thrive. And I don't know what that looks like because we're changed people now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a, uh, a Facebook page website and maybe you also want to talk about this documentary that you can also find uh, people can find on YouTube. I've watched it a couple of times. Let's just talk about all of that right now. The Facebook page, this documentary, all of that. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? 
So we have we have a website. I, I don't know if um, I mean it's it's functional uh, and there'll be a lot more stuff to it. But uh, the Facebook page now we have almost thirty three thousand people that have joined and they're a very engaged, uh, supportive community that that have what I love to see is is that they support one another and and so we'll share missing uh, people's posters there. Um, and so that's missing Ryan Stuka. Uh, we also uh, have co-founded a, a nonprofit called the Freebird Project. And so that is also a website and a, um, a Facebook page. So we that's where we provide uh, resources along with uh, Tammy Neuron and Kate Sinclair, whose uh, brother Dominic went missing in a plane crash. He was, uh, he was recovered along with his girlfriend at the time. Uh, so they have a lot of aerial search experience again with that whole remote. Uh, so we, we hope we are between our combined experiences that we can help other families. So we have Facebooks for that. And then we have um, the documentary that was done by uh, past 11 productions called uh, peaks and valleys. And so they did a, about a 23 minute documentary. Uh, and so you, you get a really good idea it, I mean, it's one thing to see it on the map. It's one thing for me to try to describe it, but for them, the the videography is is incredible. It does give you a sense of what the snow and the conditions were like, what um, the the area looks like, the vastness of of the area. So you sort of get that idea, and and just talking to some of the people that were involved, like Jerry, and then the twins that we uh, that we met. They were sixteen at the time when we met uh, Colby and and Greg, so they're now you know, 20 years old and two of the most amazing men I think you you ever want to meet that I think will do wonderful things in this world if only just on pure strength and uh, and courage alone. So they, they talk a lot about um, them in the documentary. So I think it's a good one. They the, the, yeah. the gentleman who did the documentary have, have won some awards on it. So they've, they've really put their hearts and souls into it. And I think it, it showcases Ryan. Um, you know, with through interviews with Scott and and myself, uh, you know, you were able to get that sense. So when yeah. did when was that documentary made? I don't I don't know if that talked about. Two thousand nineteen. So they okay. they uh, applied for it and got um, through Story Hive they, and Telus uh, our mobility. So they got uh, a grant in order to help them mm. uh, do it, and so it was released. I think July fifteenth of two thousand nineteen. Okay. So it's been out for almost three years now. Okay. Very good. So it was done, you know, just like a year started, I guess, you know, how long it takes all the filming and then editing and everything. It might've, they might've started filming this only, you know, a year after um, yeah, yeah. Ryan maybe went missing, maybe not even that. I, I want to say probably October. And then they, they actually came to Beaumont so they could interview yeah. Ryan's friends. Uh, and sort of get a sense of, of Ryan, because it's one thing for me to tell you what I think I know about my son. Yeah, um, It's another thing for them to get sure. um, information from his friends that grew up with him uh, and could give you a different perspective as well. True. Very good. All right. And I will be linking to all of that, of course, before the listeners and viewers uh, see us or hear us. And this will be coming out uh, this coming Friday, uh, May 20th. So I will be able, I will of course link to that on our website, on our Facebook page, et cetera, before um, this comes out. So all everybody can take a look at that before they listen to your interview. Uh, any final words before we complete this interview? 
no, um, I can't, I can't, I just, I just want to make sure that people understand, like, you don't have to be like, so Ryan's in, in Canada. Um, so if you're not uh, familiar with Canada, if you haven't come here, um, or you have missing people, you look to see what you can do. And, and I can't even tell you how grateful and humbled we have been by the support, not only just the people that came and were actually physically searching, but the people that, you know, sent donations for foods for that, you know, that did prayer chains, that did meal trains, that um, raised awareness by supporting that. So even if it's not Ryan, I say to anybody, the power of what you can do as a, as a community is sharing um, missing people's uh, in your area, if you're able to volunteer and help that, you will never know how grateful families are going through some of the worst tragedies of your life. So whatever you can do, if that's all you can do, then then do it. Just you know, anything to help these families find closure. And the ones that don't get the same exposure, I am completely and well aware that um, there is a disparity between uh, how some people, missing people um, get coverage and yeah. whether they get national coverage. And, and I can't apologize for advocating as strongly as I have because it is my son, but I certainly recognize that not all families receive the same sort of support um, and network that, that, that we have. And I just ask if you are able to do something for those families, uh, they would be forever grateful to get everybody to the same sort of exposure to bring them home. Heather, thank you for being on this episode of Unfound. Thank you. You're welcome. And that was my May 15th, 2022 interview with Heather Stuka, mother of Ryan Stuka. I thank her for joining me and all of you on both audio and video for this episode. As Heather and I discussed... A very good documentary was done concerning Ryan's disappearance. Please find it on YouTube. But I also made a map analysis video for this case. It can be found on Unfound's YouTube channel. While listening to Heather's interview, I'm sure many of you thought of the following disappearances. Jason Landry, Brian Schaefer, Jamie Bowen, Joshua Guimond, Shelva Rafty, Kevin Nguyen, and many others. All of them have people who had they been paying a little more attention, they could have prevented those disappearances, or at least given the family or law enforcement information that could have brought these cases to endings very quickly. Not blaming these people, not pointing fingers at them, not saying they're self-absorbed or even involved in the disappearance themselves. My point is that is how fine a line there is between a disappearance happening and a disappearance not happening, a disappearance being solved quickly and one that remains unsolved for years or decades. But I see four other factors at play that night besides the people around Ryan. Number one, the time of day. There wouldn't have been many people on the streets at two in the morning. Number two, the weather. Dangerous for anyone out there. It could have caused Ryan to get hypothermia. 
and from a search point of view, the snow covered up any tracks Ryan would have left. Number three, the area. Ryan, if lost, would have gotten into rugged and unknown terrain quickly. And number four, Ryan himself, who knows what effect the alcohol and ecstasy had on him. Looking at all of those points, including the people around Ryan that night, if you take any one of those away, and most likely, either Ryan doesn't go missing, or he is found quickly, whether alive or deceased. Instead, Unfound is covering Ryan's disappearance four years later. What I'm saying is the public, through continuing education, must get from an attitude of, had we only known, to an attitude of, we know it can happen anytime. I'll leave the theorizing up to you. And that's the program. Right now, while you are in your podcast platform, Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, wherever, give Unfound a five-star review, a thumbs up, whatever that platform allows. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've just finished this episode of Unfound.